Welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. BFG. Merry Christmas, Bowman. How you doing over there in Canada? In Canada, Canada. I am uh, getting over a cold. Uh, it's been kind of a... Uh, it's put a restraint on a lot of things I could do over the holiday season so far. And uh, some people, you know, can't visit the house for parties and stuff because of my condition. But on the, on the day that we're supposedly supposed to have a big shindig that was cancelled... I'm now starting to feel better, so Murphy's Law is in full effect. Sod's Law, they called it over here. Sod's Law. Sod's Law. Who yeah. is Sod compared to Murphy? I bet you Murphy was unluckier. Uh, probably, yeah, because he's a Newfoundlander. With Murphy, he has to be. Or an Irishman. That's true. I, I, I don't know same for a fact. That, I guess. Same difference. I don't know he's a Newfoundlander, in fact, but it's... Uh, I thought it was Newfoundland saying, but I guess it's a North American thing, eh? Yeah, Absolutely. Speaking of Newfoundland and Ireland and uh, and whatnot, uh, dancing men. Mm, uh, dancing men. Mm -hmm. This has kind of been some sort of a tease that we kind of <laughs> left uh, you guys with uh, over the while here. Uh, the last time that we tried to get a show together, uh, we managed to squeeze out the first two tales uh, there, but we're unable to get to the third tale from the return of Sherlock Holmes due to some technical problems on my end. Yeah, and today we had a late start because of technical difficulties on my end. So it just seems that this isn't meant to be. Uh, well, sometimes, sometimes perseverance is the key. And sometimes you got to wait for a good thing to happen. And hopefully here on the 27th of December 2017, four days, four and a half days before the end of the year, hopefully this is our time. Hopefully. Well. I, ha I have Christmas optimism, so let's. I'd say... Um, I think everything is going to be fun, is going to go fine for the rest of the show today. Let's hope so, and then we can kick off the new year with our next episode sometime in January. So basically, Indeed. basically, Bud, like you say, uh, we're getting ready to talk about the adventure of the Dancing Men, which is the third story in the Return of Sherlock Holmes. I got a plot summary ready. You have got some publication information, so why don't I just let you do it? Well, Dancing Men was first published in December 1903 in the Strand. And in Collier's magazine, uh, part of the collection return of the Sher of the Sher of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, af afterwards, it was collected into a series into a series uh, called that. Afterwards, but uh, that's really all. You, that's not really all you can get for the publication information on on, on these books. Uh, it's almost like, unlike you know, when we're doing the Fleming stuff, we could easily get you know tidbits of the time period because I think cultural media was a lot different even back in the 50s than it was back in the late Victorian era. So, mm -hmm. And what about reviews? Uh, we like to tap into the Goodreads network. Uh, yeah, anything Goodreads else we can is, find external? No, 
And yeah, nothing extant besides Goodreads, to be honest with you. Um, interestingly enough, I, d I didn't see uh, Good Enough for a Cuppa there, so I guess that person didn't read The Adventure of the Dancing Men. Well, maybe. Or maybe it just wasn't, or maybe it just wasn't good enough for a cuppa. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Maybe it wasn't the perfect length for Cora yeah. and her tea if, party ensemble. To those who uh, listen to our show, uh, you, you may recall that uh, we always see that one person there in, in the Goodreads uh, in the in, in the Goodreads uh, section, uh, always saying perfect length for a cuppa. And it just seems to be like the only thing that this person ever says about the book, the stories. So it's just kind of a, a little bit of, a, of an in, of an in joke, I guess. Uh, it's a lot of an in joke, I'd say. <laughs> it's not really funny, to be honest with you. It's more annoying than it's more, <laughs> it more annoying than, than anything. But it does kind of reinforce my cynicism towards modern literary criticism. Well, it, it runs hand in hand with the advent of, you know, the, the internet and social networking. Everybody has an opinion and everybody's opinion, they think at least, like us, is, um, is valued and you know, warranted. When the, the fact remains, as I've said here before on the show, you and I have opinions that the world does need. I'm not so sure that Cora's is necessary, but, you know, in, in, in keeping with the Christmas spirit, I suppose it, you know, it fills some hole for someone. Mm-hmm. Indeed, some void. Yes, some void. Well, look, buddy. Um, Let's get... just see what Goodreads has to say. Yeah, tell us. Tell we? us. I'm at yeah, before... the edge of my seat. Yeah, but, yeah, exactly. Didn't stop rudely interrupting me, please. Indeed. Unpredictable, but a bit boring, to be honest. Mm. This was fun, easy to follow mystery. I found it to be a powerful, evocative story. A powerful, evocative story. <laughs> What is this guy reading, Bryce Courtney? Uh, <laughs> yeah, The Potato Factory. Good book, by the way. Power of One. Good book. Another good one. Yeah, but is Dancing Men in that league? I don't know about that. Not sure. Uh, when love becomes selfish, it is always ruin in the end. Ooh, someone went for the, pep, for the poetic kind of summary. Mm. Speaking of summary... Oh, <clears throat> right. Thank you. I, I was I was expecting some great platitude at the end of what you shared there, but I guess that's uh, that's the clunky segue into me. It is okay. The adventure <clears throat> adventure rather of the dancing men. What do you get when you mix the mind reading scene of the cardboard box, the secret wife trope from the yellow face, the fearful cartography of the five orange pips, and the blackmailing scorn of a rejected lover, a la Musgrave ritual? Well, The Adventure of the Dancing Men, of course, the mightiest and most obvious rehash yet in Conan Doyle's Holmes' career. Can we blame him for this? Well, most certainly, as the story is replete with more than accidental nods to and features of his previous stories. Should we blame him for this? Well, only if the story sucks. After all, though both deal in borrowed goods and tradition, it's a fine line that separates a rip-off artist from a sensei. A closer look at The Dancing Men awaits us. For Doyle's third adventure in The Return, action begins at 221B where Holmes shows off his telepathy by stating effusively that Watson has no intention of investing in South African securities. Using this simple problem of reading minds as a springboard into more challenging work, Holmes tosses his, to his sidekick a sheet of paper with a curious pattern of drawings, of dancing men to be exact. Now, the paper was sent to Holmes by Mr. Hilton Cubitt of Ridingthorpe Manor, Norfolk, whose wife attributes far more importance to the childish sketches than he does. Hilton met his wife, Elsie Patrick, an American at Queen Victoria's Jubilee in 1897, and, after a month's courting, tied the knot with her. 
Hilton is a loving, trustworthy chap. Or a desperate one. We can't quite tell for sure. It's like Harry and Meghan. Mm, indeed. And agreed to his wife's strange, single term of condition before marriage. Citing no more than disagreeable association, her <clears throat> disagreeable associations, her previous life, Elsie all but tells her love-struck Hilton that she's trying to escape something bad, but on no condition can he uh, question... Oh, sorry, but on no condition could he question or pressure her about her past. Those days were over, and she wanted to leave it all behind. I if hate he, when my notes do that. If he could agree to that... You hate what, sorry? I, I said I hate when my notes do that. <laughs> you very, very, you very rarely stumble sometimes. I stumble a lot, and I, 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 know, I manage I to, you know, I pick myself up and keep going, but you're kind of, you're, you're very, you know, you're very, like, uh, what's the word, uh, smooth about it, but... Uh, Typically. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're just tired over the Christmas season. I think he just stumbled. That's what I think what happened there. No, I tell you what happened there, buddy. Um, I heard something crash in the back of the house, and I'm the only one in here. Um, and so I suppose you could say a, a more cogent individual would get up and check, but I'm, I'm, I'm batting through just to finish this thing off. There could be burglars upstairs, you know, looting my place. There could be uh, wild dogs chewing on the rest of my leftover turkey, but... Because I heard the crash and I'm reading on, I thought that, uh, you know, a stumble here or two could be excused. Absolutely. Carry I on. Uh, I don't know. I'm just, um, okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> give me a second here. Men. What do you get when you mix the mind-reading scene of the cardboard box, the secret wife trope from the yellow face, the fearful cryptography of the five orange pips, and the blackmailing scorn of a rejected lover a la Musgrave Ritual? The adventure of the dancing men, of course. The mightiest and most obvious rehash yet in Conan Doyle's Holmes career. Can we blame him for this? Well, most certainly. The story is replete with more than accidental nods and features from his previous stories. Should we blame him for this? Well, not necessarily. Only if the story sucks. After all, though both deal in borrowed goods and tradition, it is a fine line that separates a rip-off artist from a sensei. A closer look at the dancing men awaits us. Well, for Doyle's third adventure in The Return, action begins at 221B, where Holmes shows off his telepathy by stating effusively that Watson has no intention of investing in South African securities. Kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi when he says, you do not need to see my papers, or whatever he says. Well, These aren't the droids we're looking for. Yeah, okay, whatever. Fuck. See, that's, that's, how, uh, that's how Star Wars up I am. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Where am I? Right, here I am. Sorry, you know what? It's Christmas. I got a beer. I'm, I'm not paying 100% attention to these lines, which I wrote uh, weeks ago. Uh, using this simple problem of reading minds as a springboard into more challenging work, Holmes tosses to his sidekick a sheet of paper with curious pattern of drawings, of dancing men to be exact. Now, the paper was sent to Holmes by Mr. Hilton Cuppet of Ridingthorpe Manor, Norfolk, whose wife attributes far more importance to the childish sketches than he does. Hilton met his wife, Elsie Patrick, an American at Queen Victoria's Jubilee in 1897, and after a month's courting, tied the knot with her. Hilton is a loving, trustworthy chap, or a desperate one, we can't quite tell for sure, and he agreed to his wife's strange, single term of condition. Now, get this. Citing Worst no... prenup ever. Worst prenup ever, <laughs> yeah. Citing no more than, quote, disagreeable associations, end quote, in her, in her previous life, Elsie all but tells her love-struck Hilton that she's trying to escape something bad, but on no condition can he ever question or pressure her about it. Now, those were the days. They're gone. They're over. She wants to leave it all behind. Now, if he can agree to that and keep his word, yeah, sure, she'll be his for whatever remains of her time on Earth. Now for a brief diversion. 
And at the risk of sounding crude, this is the third time now in a Sherlock Holmes story when a male client comes to Holmes after succumbing to pussy power and feeling now the discomfiture of living under a secret. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm all for female sexual power. I've got no problem, zero problem, in fact, with women then or now channeling the vaginal deities to gain domestic comfort, advantage. Men have done it, and they still do much worse to women. But it must be one hell of a romp in the hay that makes a guy say, you know what, honey, don't bother sharing anything about your life with me. I mean, I I like living in the dark. I like guessing your every move. It's cool. It's fun. Now, the point is, flippancy aside, that... Elsie Covet, like Hattie Doran and Effie Monroe before her, hold an awful lot of control over her husband. In previous eras, these beauties would probably have been executed for witchcraft. But here, in Doyle's world of 1903, the women just come across as looking like dangerous gold-digging pricks, and the guys who agree to their ridiculous terms of please look the other wayness" are buffoons of the highest order. I'm all for clean slates and reparation, fresh starts, future forward thinking, but come on, really. To impose a secrecy pledge and enforce a pinky swear over the first half of your life? What kind of foundation for a relationship is that? And how much faith must Elsie have in her sexual prowess and female charms? At the end of the day, it was a gamble that Hilton Cubitt was willing to take because he married her and stayed true to his, I mean to her, word. As for the first, and for the first little while, the love was good. But boy, does he soon suffer. Now, back to the story. More mysterious letters arrived from America with, yes, more dancing men. Oh, and did I mention that these were left on the sundial of Cubitt's front lawn? Yeah, enlightened readers can almost hear Doyle's lazy yawning, a fart perhaps issuing from his breeches as he turns back the pages of his own manuscripts to pluck environmental features from the five orange pips in a gesture of meh, it worked well then, so let's get on with it. While Holmes ponders the mystery and recognizing it as a coded language, he tries to unravel the hieroglyphics of it all. Without a Rosetta Stone, it must be noted, disaster looms at Ridingthorpe Manor. Sensing this but not revealing anything, Holmes instructs Watson to get ready immediately for the next train to Norfolk so they have time so they haven't time to waste. It's in moments like these that the depth of Sherlock's power seems to lurk most instinctively. He knows, even though the evidence isn't revealed as being prophetic, that things are mounting for the worst. Unfortunately, he and Watson will have to waste time because they've just missed the last service by a testicular follicle and they can't leave till the morning. Upon arriving at North Walsham, the duo learn that both husband and wife have been shot. Hilton is dead and Elsie is on death's door. To add insult to injury, Holmes's fear is realized as he learns from the local inspector Martin that the shooting took place just hours ago. Governed by a sense of honor and duty, Holmes holds court, almost literally, when he arrives at the manor, cross-examining the kitchen and housekeeping staff, Mrs. King and Saunders respectively. Both women were roused from their sleep by the enormous sound and both recall the smell of gunpowder from their positions upstairs. This is enough for Holmes to suspect an open window featured somehow in the shooting because only a draft could carry the smell of powder upstairs. With similar acumen, he soon establishes that a third person and bullet were also involved. A quick examination of the flower bed showed that someone had trampled the earth in haste and after some geographical guessing work, he sends the stable boy across to nearby Elbridge's farm with a note addressed to Abe Slaney. Satisfied, he coyly advises Inspector Martin to call for a police escort, as he fully expects the guilty party to show himself soon. Martin looks on and nods in amazement of Sherlock's swaggering instruction, while the great detective orders the house servants to keep silent on Elsie's near-death condition, sending any gentleman caller directly to the drawing room. Well, during the hour that passes before the suspect's predicted arrival, Holmes reveals to Watson and to us how he managed to break the codes of the dancing men by identifying and identifying the culprit as Abe Slaney. 
He also explains how, by sending a wire to his pal Wilson Hargreave of the New York Police Bureau, the Felix Leiter to his own 007, we assume, <laughs> he ascertained the true identity of this Abe. Stateside, Slaney is regarded by authorities as, quote, the most dangerous man, crook, in Chicago, end quote. The final chapter in this tragic tale of Sherlock Holmes versus the mob is enunciated by Abe himself when, appearing at Thorpe Manor and knowing the gig is up, he confesses to all and sundry and shines light on Elsie's dark secret. Not only is Abe a crook, but Elsie's dad Patrick was boss of the joint and creator of the Dancing Men criminal code. Learned by all in his organization, including his daughter, it was a language that couldn't fail to stay secret. Unless, of course, it was intercepted by a nervous husband and put into a crime-fighting, shit-kicking human computer. By using his own code against him, Holmes drew Abel to Cain, you might say, and rendered his execution unavoidable. The story doesn't end with biblical or poetic justice, however, as Hilton Cubitt pays the ultimate price for his naive devotion to Elsie. Doyle tries his best, though, in affording that mobster's daughter a full recovery and a postscript of widowhood and Mother Teresa service that even the Vatican would be proud of. <laughs> Lovely. <clears throat> Sorry about that. That was a plot summary that was written a few weeks ago now and uh, just managed to dust it off and read it up for the purposes of today's show. It was good. I won't stumble over my next one, I promise. It's a commitment. It'll be better. you got to wonder what... You know, you have the whole rant about how Cubit or Cubit or whatever his name is, how he, you know, fell for Elsie and the conditions that she placed upon him and how unrealistic they are. And it just makes me wonder, what does Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, uh, probably a townie in his own way, what does he think of people from Norwich? You know, like, what does it say about uh, the rural people of England? You know, like, are they a bunch of yokels? You know, and that's kind of what they're trying to make, I think, he... he, he Hilton appear as, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. It obviously goes deeper than that, you know, the flippancy that I offer about women and being able to hold sexual power over men. I'm, I'm sure that's part of it, but uh, he doesn't seem to have a lot of respect for all of these landowners. No, he doesn't. Uh, and also, there's a lot of, uh, we recall in previous stories, there's like, you know, like the copper beaches and other things like that. There's a lot of uh, pretext for, the, the rural being very carnal and violent and, and uh, mm. it's just, it's just the prettiness of the city is of the of the urban life is stripped away. And that's all you get is just the savagery and kind of a very uh, Western kind of viewpoint on things. That's a good point. It is, isn't it? It's like John Wayne standing in the doorway in the searchers, right? It's, it's that kind of that between civilization and, and the savage land outside. Well, look, do you want to light our pipes and uh, fire this puppy up? Yes, let's light our pipes. Right, what are we lighting here? P-I-P-E-S. Explain the acronym for those who are uh, maybe new to the show. Principles is, it, is the first letter P. Uh, that's <laughs> you sure, weren't that's, sure about that for a second, were you? I wasn't sure how to word it. That's what I wasn't <laughs> sure about. Okay. Sure. Um, forgive me, I have post-nasal drip right now, and I'm just trying to situate the phlegm for any other details than that, uh, I won't go into it. Um, PIPES is an acronym for principles, investigation, perpetrators, environs, and supporting cast. Principles, I think, being the one thing I should exp I should expand upon is that it's our heroes, Sherlock and Dr. Watson. And I think our, our, our reminisces and our... Uh, meditations that we're about to express, I think, will explain each section 
and why we chose the, those na- those names for those sections of the acronym. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I is investigation, the mark we give for not just what Holmes and Watson do and kind of the story, uh, the intricacies of the plot that Doyle produces, but also the way the story is written, rendered, and kind of gelled together. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, we, we're not just looking at just like the investigation of the case itself. You know, is it a good case or isn't it a good case? It's more about how the story is written as well. I mean, we, we there are good Sherlock Holmes stories that have terrible cases, mm-hmm. but there but 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 some of them are also very well written. Uh, so there's different features you have to consider with each of these things. They're they're, they're just terms to fit the acronym really. Mm-hmm. And the second P is for perpetrators. These are the criminals behind the scene, or well, it's not always criminal. The um... Poor souls. Yeah, the antagonists, the poor yes. souls, the the individuals who are at least underneath the scrutiny and microscope, or I should say magnifying glass. Um, mia culpa, mia uh, culpa, mia culpa. Yeah. And then the E is for the environment, uh, the environs, the settings, the places that are traveled, interior, external, um, you know, locations. We give a mark up to five for how those come off and how they're used in the stories. And finally, Josh, the S. Supporting cast, dramatis personae, mm-hmm. the, all the all the players in the story besides the perpetrators and the principals. How do they play a role in this tale? How do they affect the outcome? Do they bring some sort of characterization or to help tell the story in a better fashion without them? Yeah, and that uh, gives us a total mark of 25 for each of our stories, which we're going to use, of course, at the end of this whole charade, uh, this whole, um, well, I shouldn't say charade, this whole enterprise. Sometimes, yeah. it fe- sometimes it feels like a charade, but charade. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah. we're, we're going to get our index scoring and then we're going to have a great summary at the end of this about the, the home stories we would recommend as both super fans and as just uh, avid readers and yeah. uh, the ones that we think you can steer away from. So it'll be good fun when we get yeah. there. We're about halfway yeah. through now. Yeah, and, and for those playing the home game, we recommend, you know, if you're following along with us, use your, you, you use the, light your own pipes and uh, make, mm. make your own score at a t- t- 25. Yeah. Discuss amongst your friends, like all the cool kids. Like, well, like us at least. Um, yes. Okay, so speaking of lighting the pipes, here we go. Let's light them up. Got a peppermint flavored tobacco today in spirit of Christmas. What are you having over there? Uh, I got a Starbucks flavored caramel brulee latte flavored. Oh wow! We always pushing the boat out, Josh. You're always doing me one better. Hey man, we need funding. That's true. We do. Yeah, we need sponsors. Uh, right. All the, people, all the people at Starbucks, Hazeldean Road in Canada, they love me and my sister. I, they know me by name when I walk in. Is so that maybe right? I should, that's something that I should develop. You know, get them sponsor our podcast. See what happens. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that will happen. But uh, let me know how you get on with that. Yeah, right. Right now, I think right now we'll just stay this, stay like this. We'll be the strand, you know, in this metaphor, and we're not going to move on to the Harper's Bazaar yet. Not yet, no. But we do need to move on to start talking about this. We got three stories to get through yep. today. Uh, plot summary done. Let's get into the principles. How do you find Holmes and Watson here in this story? I find them. I find them generic. There's little development from Holmes, as this is a case that could be considered a failure. It's clear Holmes is affected due to his efficient but ruthless means. He puts a gun to the head of Slaney. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't. You know. He doesn't do it just to. You know. Because of his love for justice, he wishes to see his client avenged and his client's widow exonerated. That's part of his his modus operandi by the end of the story. 
Yeah, particularly when particularly when he recognizes the threat that they're in. Exactly. And meanwhile, Watson is just in typical observing reaction mode. Uh, yeah. He never had much to do in this tale. He didn't know. He just had to sit by and watch as um, Holmes code breaked. And uh, <laughs> I, I often, you know, f- same as when I was reading the Five Orange Pips. I, I wonder if Albert Holstein or, or, or one of them would have been able to do a better job of, uh, you know, speeding up this code break. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, exactly. It's like uh, the uh, Navajo code lines, right? The um, the funny part too is that I want to mention too is Watson is also uh, have to deal with like you know being Charles Xavier'd by uh, Holmes there with the whole telepathy thing at the very beginning there that kind of doesn't really put his character on a I don't know to use that to use the word that that person used in the Goodreads evocative level yeah yeah it, it's just Watson is just kind of there yeah he's he has been. He has been more boring of late, hasn't he? Yeah. I think he has a better one in the next story. And it's kind of funny, too, because we're talking about South African stock, and the next tale kind of leads into South Africa a little bit. So I wonder if that was intentional foreshadowing by uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. I don't know. It's it's an interesting thought. Yeah, but that's what I thought about Holmes and Watson in this tale. I gave them a 3.5 on our rankings out of 5. Mm-hmm. Um, on the principles, I just found that they were generic uh, I give an extra point five only because of Holmes, you know, kind of his uh, passion near the end of this case uh, and bringing down Slaney and avenging his client and whatnot and trying to get to the rescue in time and not just simply being intrigued by the case itself. I, I don't disagree with you. In fact, I agree with you, uh, but I did go a little higher. I went for a oh. four. I went for a four for the principles here, and I know that's a little generous because, like you say, it's rather pedestrian. It's rather generic, but. I liked the fact that Holmes feels some guilt. He feels some responsibility for waiting too long to get himself to Norfolk. And I I thought that that was an interesting development, a human development in the character. And so I appreciated that. I went four for for, for that, but I, I can totally see where you're coming from. Yeah, it's, it's, there's, there's shades of gray, you know, like, uh, not shades, uh, layers, I guess would be a better term. Um, he's not just Babbage's calculating machine. That's right, yeah. Well, he, he may be, but um, there's a little bit more of the human here. Uh, but really, that is generous because Watson does nothing. So this is very much a Holmes mark. Plus, I do like the way that he scientifically dedicates himself to breaking this code. And the frustration that, that stems from taking it too long, I, I think it's quite a human thing as well. Absolutely. Sometimes, even, even though like he eventually figured it out because he is smart that way, mm-hmm. the limitations of the human mind, is, I think, is one of those things that uh, remind him of his mortality, I suppose you could say. Well, and speaking on that point, just before we move off, I've got an interesting note here from my Klinger edition that I'd like to share about uh, his loss of the client, if you see what I mean. Uh, oh. I just got it here. Yeah, I'd like to read it because I think it's worth spending just a moment on. Yeah, the principles need kind mm. of a little bit of a touch-up, I think. So this will do. Despite Holmes's evident dismay at having been too late to save his client, scholars such as Ian McQueen say that Holmes has no one but himself to blame. McQueen calls Holmes's demeanor the previous evening lackadaisical, especially considering that the detective claimed to have, quote, expected the alarming contents of Cubitt's message, and later, upon arrival at the manor, admits to having anticipated the unfortunate turn of events. 
If Holmes had been honest with himself, McQueen sternly declares, he might have confessed with some justification that he had suffered the greatest blow to have befallen him in his career. It was unquestionably a blow for which, owing to his gross negligence, he was personally responsible. The Five Orange Pips is a similar case in which Holmes failed to warn his client adequately to the client's final detriment. Mm. So there's Klinger's uh, annotation, uh, but really it's this guy Ian, uh, Ian McQueen writing that essay. It's also uh, very accusatory. It's very, it's very, yeah, but it's also very accusatory. Like I never really got the sense that Holmes feels the way that that guy does about it. You know what I mean? From mm-hmm. from from the writing, mm-hmm. I don't think Doyle was trying to convey that. I think Doyle was conveying that he was upset about it, but he was also still kind of Sherlock Holmes about it. Yeah, you know, like yeah, yeah. Fair enough. I I buy that. Hmm. Okay, what so about the investigation itself, like yeah, this was uh, a tough one for me. To, to the ones of that, it's supposed to pastiche of those past tales mm-hmm. so what, what do you think what, what how was it tough for, for well, you I, I i found it difficult because it was such a pastiche and i like if, if this is just me reading the dancing men on its own reading the five orange pips on its own i actually think i would prefer this story i truly do if you'd given this one to me at the beginning i think i would have enjoyed this one more i thought the code was a little bit more interesting um, yes and i like the I, I like the involvement of the, the the mafia, and obviously this is, and not for the first time, and certainly probably not for the last, but this is no. Doyle trying to tap into the American interest and what's going on over there, the Victorian fascination with the, you know, the otherness coming from America, which is still very much part of its own tradition, you know, it, how, yeah. how the English went... The, the British went to America and changed things, you know? Like, I mean, it's, it's very appealing at the time. It's very interesting. And, of course, the mafia is um, is growing. Prohibition is just a, a little way away. I, I, I think this is interesting, and uh, I like it, but it is built of component parts. And I don't know, ultimately, how much of a problem that's going to be for me. But, you know, the fact that Elsie is American presents, for me at least, an interesting dichotomy. And I'm, I'm curious to get your feelings on this so Mm. on the one hand right we got doyle's home stories that are explosively popular in the states and ever since collier's generous cash drop for the return they're probably uh, or doyle's probably more conscious than ever of wanting to keep something familiar for the yankee readers right but at the same time victorian xenophobia hadn't really died Uh, you know it was still very alive particularly among noble families like cubitt proudly claims to represent so it's it's kind of difficult to read the story and not get a sense of society's fear of the outsider yeah particularly one who shares nothing of her past yet gets so much in return like she gets so much in return so go back to like uh even uh, you know the most famous Sherlock Holmes femme, femme fatale, mm-hmm. uh, Irene mm-hmm. Adler. She was American as well. That's right. And if you and listen she... to our episode on the Noble Bachelor, you know you got another yep. example of an, of an American woman looking for a wealthy husband. I mean, th- there's precedent for this in London society. And I think that Doyle's really clever with this one because although the big reveal shows off the perpetrator, um, like. I, I, I don't know. I'm just like, th- that perpetrator is actually connected to an organized American crime. So it's not just like, look, I've solved a puzzle, but I've solved a puzzle that has a much bigger, uh, a much uh, much more resounding feel and impact in the world. And I, I kind of thought that was cool, the way he brought in an extra level that would be very interesting to the reader. Is there anything in the uh, in annotations that you notice about um, of Slaney, I know, being like the Chicago mobster? Uh, well, now, as, yeah, as, yeah. as we know, at the time period, this is just before the big immigration boom in America. Mm-hmm. And so this is, I guess this is just prior to the Black Hand from Sicily 
uh, taking over New York, right? This is this is before like Capone and before Torrio, his his boss. So we're dealing kind of, uh, I guess, Irish mob in in uh, in, in, in Chicago, I, I guess, in this case. Well, I, I got some notes on that, okay? And again, I'm drawing on Klinger for some of this stuff. Uh, two decades before Al Capone arrived in Chicago and became king of the city's organized crime, Chicago was already a rough industrial town overcrowded with newly arriving working class European immigrants and their children. In many ways, proud of its reputation for rowdiness and even corruption, Chicago was ripe for the kind of gang warfare that employed Abe Slaney and Elsie's father, and which paid the road for the rise of Capone. Rudyard Kipling was appalled by the city's crime, writing in his, quote, American Notes from 1891, Having seen it, Chicago, I urgently desire never to see it again. It is inhabited by savages. I look down interminable vistas flanked with nine, ten, and fifteen-storied houses and crowded with men and women, and the show impressed me with such horror. Except in London, and I have forgotten what London was like, I had never seen so many white people together and never such a collection of miserables. Hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, Chicago had a reputation before Capone got there. Obviously, it's a, it's, it's a nexus, a confluence of railway lines and shipping, uh, not yeah. shipping. Well, yeah, you gateway the to the West. The gateway to the West, that's right. And, I mean, one of the reasons it's, it's such a great place for food is because, you know, back in the day, it was this, uh, this, this nexus, this meeting point of, uh, of lines and commerce. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, you get a lot of crime and a lot of trade and a lot of uh, business going on there. Anyway, um, I mean, that's just a bit of context on Chicago. I could go no, on, but... It's, it's helpful. Yeah. It's helpful. Uh, I don't know. So what did you give for your final rank on the investigation? I, I, I'm, Score, not hap- I'm not happy with it, but I, I feel like it's the right thing to do I, because I've seen some of this stuff before. I, if it was... I, I went for a 3.5, okay? I'll just get... I went for a 3.5, but I, I would like to have... I, I feel like the story's better than that. It's just there's a part of my brain that's saying this is rehash. And this yeah. is playing play to an American audience, and it's doing so rather transparently. And so yes. I come back to my plot summary. Does it matter if it's good that it's rehash? And the answer is no. But is this good enough to take me away from the rehash? No, it isn't. So I'm going I'm going 3.5. That's a safe. That, that, that's safe. And I think it's fair at the same time. 3.5 is what I put as well. All right. Um, I said the caveat of losing the client doesn't excuse the fact that this tale is a derivative of like the noble bachelor, the yellow face, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, the five pips, and we haven't yet more, and we have more American connections. Uh, the climax revolving around the capture of Slaney upon the death of Cubit was Cubit, sorry, was riveting enough as the narrative impetus is driven by Holmes' desire to clear Mrs. Cubit of murder, attempted suicide, and avenging her husband's client, and all this sort of stuff. And I mean, and, and that was powerful and evocative, as our good reader says. But at the same time, we've seen it before, and. It was almost just like a perfected version of that story, of those stories in a way. Well, did you feel it was perfected? Did you feel like it was an improvement on them? I liked it. I liked it better than those previous stories. Yes, I did. Well, see, that, but, that's that's what but I but mean too. It was too, always like... in the back of my mind. It was mm-hmm. in the back of my mind of this. I've read this before, so I just have mm-hmm. to. In terms of, I got to get too critical. I think here, maybe too snobby or snooty. I don't know. I just had to kind of dock that that point five and give it three point five instead of four. Okay, you're you're in the exact same place as I am. Then, I, yeah. and I, I, I sympathize with Doyle because his publisher Greenhow of the Strand was telling him how, you know, um, he wasn't really impressed with the first couple of stories from the Return, and he was saying how when you write as many stories as I have, 
um, a certain amount of repetition is going to come into this. You know, if you want your stories, you know, you got to have to get on with it type thing. And I, I get that, you know, we're nearly 30 stories into this thing now and he's running out of plots, but hey, <clears throat> he's still, really, still turning I, it out. I didn't really found also any passages though. If, and I think this is a fair statement that really grabbed me, like some, some, some of his greater stories. And, 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 and to me, uh, I just, I, I think, you know, those things tend to put those scores over the top and, this one just didn't reach that uh, event horizon, I guess you could say. Yes, I'm, I'm looking through my my own notes, my own annotations here, and I usually color code my you know interesting phrases and nice expressions and stuff, and I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing very much of it. So, yeah, I think that's also fair. Um, Three point five, because while the story moves at a good pace, it, uh, it it isn't really beautifully written. It's just kind of pedestrian. It's meat and potatoes. Anyway, so our principles. I gave three point five. I found Slaney. He comes off as a coarsened piece of work, but he's also very derivative. Uh, it's clear that he cares for Elsie, and I kind of like that about him. But he's also, but she to him, I think, is a narcissistic pr- projection of his own needs and wants, and it would be a mistake to call that love. And so, any affection for her, you know, that could be construed, I think, he, he would come off as. I think a stronger three-dimensional character if he had remorse for Cubit's death, which he doesn't. So to me, he's still in that evil category. Yes, I'm glad you said that. I agree with you. And it's funny, you know, I'm just thinking about what you're saying. Like, Elsie is asking a lot of her husband. And it's it's unrealistic, I think, for even... I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's not so unrealistic for men to keep secrets from their wives. But back then, how many men would really you kind of give in to a woman of secrets like this. Like it, it just seems kind of, I'm not saying it's right. You know, fuck, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying like, given so much of the patriarchy and the misogyny that runs through these stories, like it's really hard to believe that I'd have a man here who is so in love with this woman that he's just going to let her pull, uh, you know, pull uh, pull this over him, you know, like this, uh, this veil of secrecy. And he's just going to go on with it. Like, I, you know, I'm all for let's forget the past and let's not dwell on it. But she tells him in not so many words, I've got massive secrets that I want to avoid. And he's like, OK. I just find that really dumb. Like, I, And it is the third time we've seen this before, as I said in my plot summary. It's kind of, it's kind of lazy writing. It is. And, and I know this is the mark for the perpetrator uh, and not the secondary characters, but I'll tell you right now, I gave both the perpetrators and the secondary characters the same mark of three. I just just nothing really interesting in here for me because I find uh, Cubit really, of course he doesn't deserve to die, but I find him really stupid and gullible and that's, uh, I don't know, he's noble. He's certainly noble, uh, but he's... Yeah. And Abe Slaney is cool, but it's all a big info drop that tells me he's cool at the end, you know, about Chicago and everything. And I know that's how Doyle wraps some of these quick ones up, but I would I would have been more interested maybe if, if we had a, a few more hints of um, uh, of Elsie's past, like we had in the yellow face, you know, where we're, we're suspecting that maybe there's a kid out of wedlock or this kind of a, you know, it's a child from a different marriage or something like it would have been neat to see a little bit more of her past shared with us. I agree. Think. I, I, I went she's the same for... character from the noble bachelor yellow face amalgamated into one character yeah. and she, she's yeah. a plot device she's a plot device Cubit is a clueless but honorable bloke who trusts his wife in this unrealistic fashion to his bitter end 
and the local inspector and county doctor, well, they're tacked on like plot mm-hmm. devices, essentially. Yeah. Uh, it's like like budget Lestrade, budget, you know, this person or, or whatever, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, very much so. And the way they look at Holmes, too, when he arrives, they're just kind of like, you picture the cartoon jaw drop, like, oh, who's this guy coming to save our uh, save our investigation? Thanks, He-Man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back to Eternia with you, son. Exactly. Anyway. I have to say, though, uh, yeah, the last three, the last of the pipes, uh, the, the perpetrators, the environs, and the... Uh, supporting players, I gave a whole. I'm, I'm, I get marked a three to all of them. Okay. I did give three point five initially to the perpetrator yeah, because I, so, I, yeah. found, I found Slaney was just kind of there's something interesting about him, and I wanted more of I wanted more of him, and the whole Chicago mobster thing that kind mm-hmm. of intrigued me a little bit. Um, but in the end, I kind of just looked at it at face value, and I just realized three is a fair mark. I think so. Mm-hmm. I went three on the last. Three of three items because the environs. If we're going to jump around a little bit here, just for the sake of, you know, getting these pipes smoked, mm-hmm. the, the that was not meant to be euphemistic of anything. By the way, um, the messages of the dancing men have an eerie quality about them. Uh, the fresh Norwich air is not explored. However, the countryside is not utilized to propel the story in any fashion. Nope. It's like an auto autopilot is set by previous tales being cobbled together. And they demonstrate this a lack of flourish. Yeah, and it's just there was nothing there to make to make things interesting to me. The dancing nope. men had a creepy factor. I will give them that. But it did, yeah, oh yeah. But but I found that they it wasn't as creepy as I thought it would be. I thought we were going to go into some kind of like I don't know like Norwich cultural history or something like that, or in the background, you know, like some pagan ritual or or something mm-hmm. like that. But it wasn't anything cool. It was like very derivative. Mm-hmm. Well, it was very play to the reader of America, is what it was, and but and also to the Victorian uh, interest in, in 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 American culture. But I agree with you a hundred percent, and I just want to second what you were saying about the environment not being used. Like whenever he goes on location outside of London, there's an opportunity there, and it doesn't need to be explored and met through descriptions of the hedgerows or the birds, but like the way the Silver Blaze environment was used, you know? Yeah. Uh, what, what we get here for environment is the same thing we got in the Five Orange Pips. Uh, you know, even right down to the right down to the fucking instrument and the item on which the notes are left, you know? Like yeah. the sundial, the window ledge. Like he's just pulling from nothing creative here. It's all the same stuff, the same rhythms he's used before. So I went actually went 2.5 for environment and three for secondary characters, which brings my mark in total to uh, six and six is 12. That brings me to a 16 overall for this story, one of my lowest, which is unfortunate because I think it reads better than a 16 out of 25. It's just yeah. that it's it's so derivative that I, I'm, I disagree with parts of it, you know? Yeah, uh, no, it's fair enough. Yeah. So, and you're at 16.5, my friend. Oh, okay. That extra five points I gave because of the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, for, 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 for the principles. That's right. But now we've got an exciting moment ahead of us because you're going to get a chance to choose What's behind door number one or door number two for musical selections of the adventure, adventure of the Dancing Men? Oh, Rapture. Okay. <laughs> rapture. To quote our old friend Stimpy there. So what do you want? Two. Door number one or door number two? Door number two, two Men yes. Without Hats, and of course it's the Safety Dance. Nice. Say, we can go where we want to, 
place where they will never find And we can act like we come from out of this world Leave the real one far behind Real neat from our hearts to our feet And surprise them with a victory cry Say, we can act if we want to If we don't, nobody will And you can act real rude and totally remote And I can act like an imbecile Say, we can dance, we can dance Everything's out of control We can dance, we can dance We're doing it from all to all We can dance, we can dance Everybody look at your hands We can dance We can dance, everybody's taking the chance Safe to dance, oh, it's safe to dance Yes, safe to dance Okay, there's enough of that uh, a, great, a great tune, well-selected, BFG I'm picturing Sherlock Holmes and his deer stalker I don't know which Sherlock, maybe Rathbone, I don't know like just dancing to the safety dance, you know, while while I don't know while he's looking for the dancing man. That's funny. I, I'm I'm picturing that being the uh, the mental screensaver of uh, Cubit, and uh, some of those lyrics apply to him, you know, about uh, losing control, not sure of uh, what's going on. You know that, like in the modern interpretation of uh, if, if they already did another another Sherlock series, you know that the modern interpretation would have him getting emails of the dancing man or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's actually funny, you know, thinking about modern interpretations. I don't know if this story would actually work in today's world. I mean, it could never have been written today, given all the secrets. Think about it. Full disclosure, the internet. But oh, then yeah. I, but, but then I wonder, could it be? Because isn't this what catfishing's all about? Yeah, that's right. It would, be, it would be a catfishing story, if anything. It would be. Anyway, look, with the end of the safety dance, that brings us on to our second story, the solitary cyclist adventure thereof. This is uh, an interesting one as well. I, um, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what you think of this one. BFG, report to the bridge. <laughs> well, do you want to do the plot summary first? Well, you know, we'll get the publication information out first, kind of set up a uh, atmosphere, a little ambiance. A little ambiance, okay, no problem. So, uh, December 1903, December 26th, this was published, uh, one of two stories published in uh, that month. In this story, uh, well, I'll actually wait to, to tell you that. Uh, instead, I'll move on um, to some Goodreads, shall I? Yeah, Goodreads are the best. Let's. It, was it worth a cuppa? That's what I want to know. Was it worth a cuppa? Uh, don't know. I didn't see a cuppa. Maybe not. Oh. Maybe, maybe uh, our friend Cora stopped after reading the memoirs. Who knows? What I can tell you, though, did. is here's, uh, here's the two-star review from um, George Slade, okay? So... A woman is freaked out by a man following her on a bicycle and it turns out to be her creepy boss trying to protect her from some other creepy guy and it turns out that both men and a third were actually part of a plot to trap her into marriage and steal her money. Women really didn't have a chance back in the day, did they? Two stars. It's a fair assessment to make. I mean, she's probably appalled. I, <laughs> I, I kind of... I kind of uh, Disparager for a lack of education, though, on Victorian society. Yeah, I, I don't. Well, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, because she's supposed to be an educated woman, you know. But if she learns about it, I suppose then. Mm, true enough. Yeah, and she does go to homes, so, she, so you know, 
Anyway, oh, we'll talk. I, oh, we'll talk I was about thinking that. of the, I was thinking of the uh, the reviewer, not uh, Violet. Oh, sorry, pal. I got you. I'm with you now. Right. Well, see what you think of this reviewer. Three star review from Rao. It was a light case even for Sherlock himself. That is why Watson is rather more engaged in chores of the story. Over and above, reading it won't take centuries. So take it, read it, enjoy it. Over and out. Thank you for that pish, Rao. That's more like what... Google Translate. <laughs> Google Translate, yeah. It wasn't, uh, wasn't great review. Uh, I also disagree with the idea of Watson being engaged in the chores of the story. But we'll talk about that. Uh, Sergio, five stars from Sergio. Oh. Women have that sense of when something is not right. Watson is unfit for vigorous activities. Done. That's it. Five stars. <laughs> he likes the word Watson and vigorous put together. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. Well, look, buddy. Uh, this is one of four short stories written by Holmes's creator that include a female client named Violet. We've already met Violet Hunter in the Copper yep. Beaches, and here we meet Violet Smith, this damsel. Uh, add some context to it, hit us with a plot summary, and bring us up to speed. The Adventure of the Solitary Cyclist, in which we encounter another Violet, this lady going by the last name of Smith. Mm -hmm. Thank you for stealing my thunder, by the way. I do apologize. Now... <laughs> Now her man Watson has taken an introductory paragraph to intimate that Holmes was working a big case involving a tobacco magnet. One cannot say no to big tobacco. So it but seems. But in the somewhat rambling justification for these little vignettes, Watson wants to let us know that it is not the sordid nature of the crimes that are to be investigated that drive his pen and want to tell of his friend's abilities, but rather the astounding ways in which these investigations are concluded. What this essentially leads to is another Baker Street opening with Holmes being stingy with a new lady client when he has bigger fish to fry. Or that's at least how I read it. Watson seems to be over his dearly departed Mary, as he is already sizing up Miss Smith's physical attributes the moment she enters Holmes' parlor. But any ACD-style moves are put in check because this non-shrinking Violet's main beef is that she has to be too many men ogling her already. Her and her mother hailed just near the Surrey border. They are dirt poor thanks to Pod's untimely death. Oh, there's an engineer fiancé in the wings, but that's the mere, that's merely the light at the end of the tunnel for Violet. Turns out, dearly departed Pa had a brother, Ralph, who 25 years set out for fortune and glory, but mostly just fortune, in South Africa. Cue the arrival of Mr. Carruthers and Mr. Woodley, <clears throat> declaring to be friends to his to his strange Uncle Ralph, wished to see his final wishes that his family is looked after. Carruthers offers Violet the job when offers all Violets, it seems, that of a governess for his 10-year-old daughter. This allows her money to look after herself and her mother as well as being able to afford a train to visit her engineer fiancé. But this can't be all, can it? No, it is not. Mr. Carruthers and Woodley seem to have be a package deal, and Woodley a ginger <laughs> mustachioed rogue, if there ever was one. Why are gingers evil in Arthur Conan Doyle land? I don't know. Proceeds to court her with his loudest charm. Well, they're not They're not all evil. Remember uh, our, they're our friend. They're, they're peculiar. Yeah, they're peculiar. They have, yeah. they have magical properties of some kind. <laughs> Woodley is kicked off the premises for his lack of gentlemanly deportment, and all seems well until Violet... At this point, her mode of conveyance recreation is already pegged by Sherlock. Bicycling down the lane to catch her train to visit Engineer Boy is being followed by another cyclist. What is going on? She asks Sherlock, explaining how she trolls her pursuer with sharp turns and whatnot to catch her cycling stalker off guard, but finds the bearded man, he wears a beard, has disappeared. 
Holmes is intrigued by the case, but Big Tobacco demands attention, so pulling a page out of the Baskerville case sends Watson to observe the situation up near Surrey. Watson, despite his army training, is no agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., however, and while he determines <laughs> that the lane in which the cyclist appeared and disappeared is near some guy named Williamson's pro- property, he gets a condescending Cumberbatchian-esque tirade from Holmes, mm-hmm. kind of like Batman berating Robin over missing a spot whilst waxing the Batmobile. Yeah, now. Yeah. You're talking about euphemisms. Yeah, there's one. You put that to you put that to your mind. What that could be about? Uh, it's quite hilarious, and I'm a terrible person to find this funny kind of way. Miss Smith sends another telegram informing that the cyclist is still on her six. Oh, and that Mister Carruthers has asked for her hand in marriage. Isn't that nice? Holmes scurries his way to Surrey to des- and descends into the morass of the local pub owned by this Williamson, a member of the clergy, or at least was at some kind a point. Holmes does his usual Roger Moore-esque inquiries about Williamson, Woodley, and Carruthers, and in classic Moore-Bond style, kicks the hornet's nest enough to bring <laughs> evil Ginger Woodley out of the woodwork. Yeah, but them's yeah. fighting words, and Holmes and Woodley engage in a round of fisticuffs that decks Woodley and stuns Holmes. Mm-hmm. Assured of villainy afoot, Holmes and Watson head down to Surrey together, hoping to catch Violet before she is taken, but to find the trap to bring her to the train, driven off the road with the groom unconscious. They encounter Carruthers, revealed in his fake beard to be the cycling stalker, and that he was only concerned about his beloved safety while creepily following her around. Woodley wants to marry her, you see, well, un- well quote-unquote marry, because Uncle Ralph just kicked the bucket for reals this time, and he actually did have a lot of money. Woodley and Carruthers used a hand of cards. Who would, who would do... Woodley and Carruthers... Sorry. Phlegm. Ah. Woodley and Carruthers used a hand of cards uh, to decide who would do the seducing. You on the dead man's niece, and Woodley won that round. Woodley's idea of marriage turns out to be worse than his idea of courting, however, as he with the patently defrocked <laughs> Williamson have violet up against a tree with a gag in her mouth ready for the nuptials. Nuptials that are wonderfully divorced. Ha <laughs> ha, with a single round from Carruthers' pistol. Woodley goes down for the count, and Williamson is rounded up by Holmes and Watson. Williamson's sketchy nature itself renders the marriage moot. Woodley is sent up river, and Carruthers gets time served due to his generally good nature. Ah. Uh, hmm. You know what? It's funny. Like this, just listening to you do that. Like I think this is a story that I would enjoy more upon repeated reading because what this story has that the other one didn't. That the other one was bigger in scale. It was a little more adventurous in terms of what it was trying to reach. You know, the shores of two different continents and whatnot. But I actually think this has got a lot of creativity in it. It but, does. But it's simple, but that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I'm looking at my marks here that I've given them. And we'll get into it now when we light our pipes uh, or continue smoking them. But I do kind of feel like, shit, you know what? This is not actually a bad little yarn, is it? No. And it, I also found the third act was very original compared to a lot of Holmes' formula we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. And, and I, in fact, this was one that his publisher wasn't too keen on because it didn't involve a lot of Holmes. No, it did not. But it, I think it worked in its favor. Yeah, like the kinda, copper, like yeah. the copper beaches too. Uh-huh. Holmes wasn't in the copper beaches a lot. It was mostly Violet playing it, right? So here we have again, you know, this Violet heroine. Mm-hmm. It makes you wonder who was Violet in, in Arthur Conan Doyle's life. I'm not sure, but both of them are regarded as attractive and stately and womanly. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's obviously a name that he fancied for some reason. I mean, given the fact that okay, if we go really Freudian, a violet is a flower, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, 
and it has out of those permutations, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I'd be, I'd be curious what the annotations say about that. Uh, nothing of that nature beyond that which I shared. This is being uh, the fourth or two. Let me try that again. One story out of four where Violet is used as a character name. I don't know how she's represented in the other two. Maybe we can look into that when we get to them. Yeah, I'll be curious comparison. Anyway, look, uh, it kind of feels like we've already started our pipes here on this one. In, in terms we sort of, of have. In terms of principles, um, this was a tricky one for me because I like a lot of what happens here. But the truth is, the truth is, Holmes and Watson, like Watson again does very little. Holmes and Watson are basically, you know, following this woman around, right? Okay, fine, when they get down there. But they hijack an empty cab, which is cool. They both brandish guns, which is cool. Holmes gets into a pub fight trying to get information, which is cool. Um, He finds it all hilarious. He laughs it all off, like sociopathically almost. Um, and, And that's all cool. But in terms of investigative work, in terms of deductive strength, in terms of Holmes at his greatest, he could have been any heavy just doing simple police work here. Like, Lestrade could have solved this one. Yeah, Lestrade could have solved this case. I and, agree. And I don't feel like there's anything in here to make it a Holmes story, apart from some of the little banter he has with Watson and, you know, kind of th- him thinking about uh, the importance of getting down there at the right time. And, and he, he has this moment where he yells at Watson. I, I don't have it right to hand, but he gets really pissy with him because he wasn't paying enough attention when he was down there on recce, right? Yeah. It's 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 it, it, it's a good standalone story, but it uh, it just because it, 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 it doesn't have to be a Holmes and Watson story, you know. And yeah, I kind of found yeah. their participation in the narrative uh, arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Well, I went three point five out of As five for for this. Oh, I thought you would have gone higher than that. No, I went three point five. I I kind of feel in your, in, the, in the way that you did. I wanted to give it a four because I really liked the story. Mm-hmm. It was a great great, but I really liked it. And I like the third act in particular, but the principles being kind of like just there in, in their own way. And even though like I liked Holmes going back to his old ways, like going in disguise and causing bar fights and stuff like that. I mean, I like that in that interaction for sure. I also kind of really enjoyed Watson uh, kind of uh, doing the anti hound of the Baskervilles and totally mucking up that whole situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when 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 he, Holmes sent him for reconnaissance, right? Uh, and I found Holmes's repudiation hilarious. Um, well, should we try? Should, let me let me try to find that because it's it's good. Yeah. Uh, he also orders them the way he orders them too. Like he just basically gives them instructions, and Watson is to be sent out again like a lackey, you know, to go do his job. He's basically he's, he's like a glorified member of the Baker Street Irregulars. That's all he is in this story. He's a, he's a Baker Street Irregular. That's exactly how it is. Kind of yeah. Uh, yeah. That says hilarious. Let me think about it. Yeah. And well, let's just read that bit. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so Watson asks, you will go down. No, my dear fellow, you will go down. This may be some trifle intrigue and I cannot break my other important research for the sake of it, <laughs> but you can go do it because it's not that important. On, uh, anyway, he didn't say that, but that's between the lines. On Monday, you'll arrive early at Farnham. You'll conceal yourself near Charlotte and Heath. You'll observe these facts for yourself. Act as your own judgment advises. Then, having inquired as to the occupants of the hall, you will come back to me and report. And now, Watson, not another word of the matter till we have a few solid stepping stones on which we may hope to get across our solution. And then, your hiding place, my dear Watson. Oh, yeah, here it will before it begins. My, Mr. Sherlock Holmes listened with attention to the long report which I was able to present to him that evening. But it did not elicit that word of curt praise which I had hoped for and should have valued. <laughs> <laughs> On the contrary, his austere face was even more severe than usual as he commented upon the things I had done and the things that I had not. 
Your hiding place, my dear Watson, was very faulty. You should have been behind the hedge. Then you would have had a, very, had a close view of this interesting person. As it is you who were, you were some hundreds of yards away and can tell me even less than Miss Smith. She thinks she does not know that man. I am convinced she does. Why otherwise should, she, should he be so desperately anxious that she should not get so near him as to see his features? You describe him as bending over the handlebar. Concealment again, you see. You really have done remarkably badly. He returns to the house, and, if, and you want to find out who he is. You come to a London house agent? What should I have done? I cried with some heat. Gone to the nearest public house. That is the center of country gossip. They would have told you every name from the master to the scullery maid. Williamson. If it conveys nothing to my mind, if he is an elderly man and he is not his act, this active cyclist who springs away from that athletic young lady's pursuit, what have we gained by your expedition? The knowledge that this girl's story is true? I never doubted it. That there is no there is a connection between the cyclist and the hall? I never doubted that either. <laughs> that, that the hall is tenanted by Williamson? Who is the better for that? Well, well, my dear sir, don't look so depressed. We can do a little more until next Saturday. In the meantime, I may make one or two inquiries myself. Mm-hmm. And he does. He goes down and gets into a fight and gets some names. Just for that moment, I give like that's why I give the principal the extra point five because mm-hmm. I, I I just found that I was that was just great. I know it was terrible for Watson, but I just that was like I don't know. As I said, Cumberbatchian. Mm-hmm. Well, it was kind of, but you know, I, I can't remember where Actually, in the chronology this one lasts or this one sets within the context of Baskerville, but I would have thought after sending him out to Baskerville, you know, he deserves a bit more credit for this than just, you know, whatever. I mean, Holmes doesn't always think rationally, and if indeed he is a high-functioning Asperger's or autistic individual, then he may not always be in control of his reactions quite the same way. Empathy comes slowly to him. And so, yeah, maybe lashing out here at Watson is just what he does because, you know, he needs to, right? Was the Because, uh, because I, I know you had the Grenada series. Was Brett's reaction... Um, pr- pretty apoplectic. A- I haven't watched it yet, dude. Oh, okay. okay. And I was waiting for this to be over and all because you know we've been watching Christmas films and stuff this time of year. Yeah. We like to do that, but I'll, I'll get into them for sure. Um, yeah. So that, this is good. Okay. So what what did you do for investigation? Where'd you go? Investigation wise, mm-hmm. I I gave it a four actually because I really, mm-hmm. like I said I really liked the story mm-hmm. and. It, it, I like the investigative, that the old style investigation that we were familiar with was put into play again here, you know, mm-hmm. like going on, going in disguise and stuff like that. And even though there wasn't much of a investigation per se, like Lestrade could have figured this out in his own way. I just kind of liked how the story interacted with the characters, how the characters bounced off the story. It was just kind of like one of those like really great kind of standalone episodes, like a monster of the week X-Files kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like it was just... Uh, Meat, good meat and potatoes. It was good meat and potatoes. Um, I liked it at a 3.5, just a little shade below you. Um, let me ask you this. Did you see, uh, did you think that this solitary cyclist, this guy who was kind of chasing him, I thought at first that it was her fiancé doing some sort of like misogynist spying on her. Like trying, to, I was, trying, to, I was trying thinking, to hold control over her. Patriarchal, I should say. I was thinking of that too. Yeah, I was thinking about that. But then I thought of the engineer. Uh and uh, I was thinking of the engineer's thumb, you mm-hmm. know, and that kind of reminded me of that. So I don't, I thought perhaps maybe Watson or sorry, Arthur Conan Doyle, maybe, I don't, maybe he likes engineers. So I thought perhaps I didn't go in that, my, 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 my thoughts did not go in the direction that, that yours did, but right. that would have made a good twist for the climax, even though the climax was twisty enough in my opinion to warrant 
uh, the full four, um, the full four marks on this one. All right, um, I don't disagree with you. It's just you know, it is a it is a cool little story, and like I was saying at the outset, I think if I was to reread it, I would enjoy it a little bit more. But I, you know. I have thought about it. I've reflected on it. And even if I did like it that little bit more, I wouldn't go beyond a four. A 3.5 is still no. 70%, so it's okay. Yeah. I got a few notes here, though, I'd like to share with you because they're interesting stuff. Um, <clears throat> so the going rate for a governess, right, at the time of this story, which is set in 1895, was 50 pounds per year. And in modern money, that's 3,200 approximately, or about 5,500 US, okay? Okay. Plus Roman board. So... In the Copper Beaches, Violet Hunter was paid four pounds per month in her position, previous to Jethro Rucastle. Before she takes on with Rucastle, she's paid four pounds per month. Four pounds per month equates to 48 pounds per annum, which is at the 50 pound per year going rate for a governess. So that makes sense, okay? Mm. Here in this story, Violet Smith is paid 100 pounds per year, which is double the norm. So Carruthers was really luring her in with the cash. Regardless of whether she had suspicions or not, £100 is twice as much as other women are getting as governess or a little homeschool teacher for the time. Hmm. I've got another little interesting note on what Victorian women were supposed to do or expected to do when riding bicycles. Hmm. They were meant to wear an ankle-length skirt. They were meant to wear petticoats, a jacket, and a hat. Now, if you think about that, that's not comfortable shit to be riding bikes in. No. An ankle-length skirt. All I can think of is it keeps getting caught up in the chain or the pedals or something. Yeah. But so-called liberated women, all right, dressed for pleasure or comfort when riding and not to the tastes of society or for the graces of, you know, peers or whatnot. I now, say. Yeah. And these individuals were considered devil's instruments. Of course. Women who just decided to dress for comfort were devilish instead of... Beware you know, women on bicycles in their, in their, uh, in their short skirts and, low, <laughs> and, and, and ankle-high breeches or whatever. That's, I don't know. That's right. Well, the upright position taken by Violet and the fact that Watson makes no big deal of her dress when he observes her and spies on her suggests that she is indeed a proper woman, which lays further support to the idea that Doyle's character of Holmes respects her and wants to do right by her. Mm. And that adds further strength to our interpretation that the name Violet means something to the author. Yes. However, having said that, um, page, I've got a page number here marked. Where is it? Let me see. There is a lot, or there's some, sexism in here. Uh, Holmes, it's a, I can't find it, but I got I got the page number marked, but it's not the one that corresponds to the the, the page. Go figure. Anyway, at at some point here, Holmes comments um, about there being a lot going on around that little woman, right? Yeah. Now Watson had earlier described her as a tall, graceful, and queenly end quote individual, tall, graceful, and queenly. So for Holmes to refer to her as a little woman. Basically, is a colloquialism, right? It's just kind of like a throwaway comment, which corresponds to some pretty sexist opinion of her. So maybe he's not quite as, I don't know, maybe he's not quite as doting upon her as he was Violet Hunter. But what do you think of all this? I think the idea of Holmes being sexist is a lot different than the regular guy being sexist back in Victorian age, though. Holmes clearly has some issue with women. Uh, it's obviously in his psychological makeup. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that has anything to do with Victorian society. I just think that just has to him to 
he just finds them ephemeral and uh, emotional and you know like the, it's just something that he just doesn't do you know what mm-hmm. I mean mm-hmm. yeah okay yeah I guess or so. maybe he is a woman as some as as we uh, as we probably <laughs> discussed because he doesn't carry shaving kit stuff with him yeah exactly anyway. Um, that, by the way, is a throwback to our Baskervilles episode. Check it out if you're interested in what the hell we're talking about there. There's some information I've also discerned here uh, and recorded about bicycling in the time of Sherlock Holmes. Cycling's popularity, Josh, grew rapidly in the 1880s. And the idea, the idea of work being done within working distance, in other words, we'll work to a place and at a place that we can reach on foot, that started to yield to the early practice of commuting on bike. Many clubs were founded, cycling clubs, and men and women used bicycles to escape the smoggy, congested haunts of London and other industrial cities. Some slammed and feared the new craze, particularly in how it threatened to emancipate young women. Imagine women riding bikes, Josh. Imagine. Uh Imagine it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, in fact, I I wanted to read something here um, just because it's quite humorous, and uh, this could be an end note for the sake of uh, the solitary cyclist here, but... It's a quote from a woman who... Ah, here we go. Yes. Sorry, I thought I had it, but I don't just... uh... A woman by the name of Mrs. Harcourt Williamson in 1897 writes this. The beginning of cycling was the end of the chaperone in England, and now women, even young girls, ride alone or attended only by some casual man friend for miles together through deserted country roads. The danger of this is apparent, but parents and guardians will probably only become wise after the event. Given a lonely road, and a tramp desperate, with hunger or naturally vicious, and it stands to reason that a girl, or indeed any woman, riding alone must be in considerable peril. And then Klinger goes on to say, there seems little doubt that Mrs. Williamson would have greeted Violet Smith's predicament with a knowing, I told you so. I guarantee you, bitch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, right, so, yeah, okay, this is just a little bit there on that. Um, yeah, I got more notes, but I think I'll, uh, that's enough context for the investigation. Yeah, yeah so I went, perpetrators? went 3.5. Perpetrators for me, okay, now, why don't you go first? Uh, no, actually, you know what, I'll go first, I'll be quick. The perpetrators here... I went 4.5, okay? I went 4.5 here. I love I love the villainy of them. I love the disgustingness of them. I love the fact that Carruthers turns, but not for the right reasons. He turns because he's covetous over this figure. He's covetous yes. over Violet. He doesn't turn because he's trying to release her. He turns because he's trying to claim her for himself. I, yes. I, I like the complexity within this crudeness, if you see what I mean. And I yes. know it's not admirable, but I like it. Williamson, as just this rent-a-cop, kind of rent a cop or rent a minister like he's he's ridiculous but i I think i think that's hilarious right like i I got this guy that if i throw you up against a tree with a gag i know he'll 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 give us our sacrament like i think that's hilarious oh yeah you know there's interesting stuff going on here and i find them really engaging so i don't think they're in the most exciting story but i think they themselves have got a lot to offer i understand that 4.5 might be a bit exaggerated but to me the characters of the perpetrators they stand out above the story and for that reason i I think maybe i'm inflating them a little bit but 
I don't know. I, I think the story deserves a couple of marks somewhere. So I'm going 4.5 because I really found them engaging and interesting. And I like the turn, the little the question of morality. And then we realize it's not morality. The guy is just a dick and he wants it all for himself. And it's, 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 it's interesting. I think people will be interested in reading these gross men. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. There's like almost like a, there's just a, 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 a human, a humanistic depravity to them. Mm-hmm. Um, that just really like you have, but I think it's because of the balancing act you have Woodley, who's a clear down and out creep. I mean, 100%, right? Yeah. Yeah. But he's also a drunk at the same time as well. And that goes into his creep factor. Mm-hmm. Then you have Carruthers. It's kind of like the smart guy, the guy with the op, the guy with the plan, but he's also soft and, 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 impli- and impli- pliable. Mm-hmm. So that's why he was able to get under, under Woodley's, I guess, uh, uh, control, I suppose, in, in, yeah. that, in that way. So they're always working together, right? And but Holmes, I, Holmes does sympathize with Carruthers too. You know, I mean, he he says he says at the end of the story, as to you, Mister Carruthers, I think that you have done what you could do to make amends for your share in an evil plot. Well, I'm not so sure he has, but uh, there's my card, sir. And if my evidence can be of help to you in your trial, it shall be at your disposal. I mean, that that's a pretty incredible thing to offer, Sherlock Holmes, giving yeah. you giving you an, you know the offer of his word in court. Like that's that's as good as a get out of jail free card, I would think, by this stage in his career. That's interesting. If you look at a modern context, how like you know look at like the social justice warrior movement and stuff like that. How back like today, someone like Carruthers would be even would be considered by many people as worse as Woodley. Mm. But back then, there's a, there's like this like fictional sort of narrative redemption for his minor villainy. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, particularly given the fact that, that Watson at the end of the story says, given the fact that Woodley is considered to have a reputation of most dangerous ruffian, the fact that Carruthers took him out probably would have helped him in court, you know? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so well, I yeah, so I went four point five. I think four point five is really good mark. That that's awesome. I only gave it a four. Yeah, but, I appreciate um, that. But um that that's really that's really good mark for that for that. And and you made me consider Moving it to a four point five, but I'm not going to. I'm going to stay at four as it was. Yeah. But uh, I, it made me, you know, made me, you know, appreciate that that part of this story even more now. So, what so, did you do for your environment? Where'd you, where'd you go? Uh, environment. I, I kind of liked how I, I liked the the public house, and I liked the lane how they described it, and and the, the tree, and often in the field where they had her tied to, where they had her, you know, gagged at, and. I found the environment was it was used um, in a very workmanlike fashion in the story, but uh-huh. it worked. And it, it, there wasn't any kind of evocative passages or anything along those lines, but the it, atmosphere was distilled quite well, instilled mm-hmm. instilled quite well. And I feel four is a fair mark for environs for this story. Okay, right. I went three point five, so I wasn't far behind you. Um, I, I thought there was nothing really enormously standout here, but at the same breath, there wasn't anything bad either. It, no. it was good. I, I thought maybe a little bit more rendering of the home in which she felt so uncomfortable, particularly yeah. imprisoned. You know, that would have been useful. But that, we, that, we, that, we got that's some. a good point. Get the feeling of the atmosphere. You know, like because mm-hmm. we never do meet the ten-year-old daughter of Carruthers. Like she's never put in any kind of like. Does she, does she even exist? That's you right. Know? Yeah, that's a good point. Consider how well the Copper Beach has rendered its environment, and you've basically got a similar thing going on here. In fact, you've got even more precise need for geography because of the roads and because of the, the kind of lookouts and spying spots. And and so I think maybe a little more could have been done, but 
3.5 is still a decent mark, and I think 4 is a, a generous mark too. So where I gave a little extra on the P for perpetrators, you're giving a little extra on the environment. That's just fine. Mm, good. Good what job. about uh, secondary? I went uh, 2.5 here, and unfortunately, I went 2.5, which I know is the lower mark that we've seen recently. Um, well, not really. I gave it for environment in the last story, but it's it's a passable mark, but just passable. The reason I did that is because with the exception of Cyril and Violet, who do we have? Violet seems a bit fucking useless to me, personally. She might be stately. She might be able to ride a bike. But, uh, you know, the, the best thing she does, the best thing smartest move she makes this entire story is going to see Holmes. That's it. Everything That's else it. is out of her hands. She's yes. like, she doesn't even seem to put up much of a fight. Like she yeah. can't, pe- she can't pedal that bike particularly fast. Cause she can't get away from anybody. She doesn't even like, you know, scream. I don't think it's just kind of, Okay, she's clearly a damsel, and that's the way that Doyle wants her to be read. And Cyril is out of picture; like he's off, completely off. So yep. this is a, this is a story and the of perpetration. Is out, of, out of there too, as well. So that's right. Yeah, yeah. And like you say, the daughter, the ten-year-old's not even in the story. Could have had an interesting role to play, you know. Uh, but hey, yeah. So I went two point five. What did you do? I did three, but okay. two point five is just as fair. But mm-hmm. I'm going to say at three, anyways. All right, so for your mark on the solitary cyclist, we have got a 12, and 3 is 15. That is 18.5 for you, my good man. And for me, I've got 7 and 8. It's 15, 17.5. So there's not much in these in the way we're reading these stories today. No, uh, yeah, we're not. We're pretty close, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We that are. Tends to be, that tends to be sort of a trend, I, I think, in the, in the past couple of at least going from like uh, the memoirs into the uh, return to Sherlock Holmes anyway. Yeah, I'm just looking back here. Um, the last story that we we saw everything exactly the same in Baskerville. Yes. Um, last episode with the first two stories, the empty house, we were very close with just one point in it, a half point in Norwood Builder. The last story on which we disagreed by any considerable amount came from the adventure of the stockbroker's clerk i liked it at a 15.5 and you liked it at a 17.5 and uh yeah that that's been that's been one of great difference but that's even that's not really that great of a difference and uh speckled band we disagreed a bit on too uh but we've been pretty quick pal we've been pretty close you know yeah we have the whole way anyway right let's see how we fare in scoring with the uh the last story today, the uh, Priory School. Yes, but before we do that, we have a tune from the Solitary Cyclist. Door number one. Door number one. Well, my friend, you have selected... Are you ready for it? Is it Bicycle by Queen? It is Bicycle by Queen. Of course. How did you know? That's what it's not. I think that has a bicycle in it. No, it's not that simple. My choices weren't that simple. What was um, that? Was that uh, some... Or I want something about there's another, there's another song called Bicycle as well. I'm trying to remember the, uh, the the name of the song now. Well, there will probably be many that say bicycle in them. Mm, true. Anyway, bicycle race by Queen. Bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle. In an ankle length skirt. In a petticoat. I 
Watch out for the rent-a-priest. I want to tie you up against a tree and marry you. I am a covetous bastard. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle. Races are coming your way. So Did you hear those interesting uh, sound bites that just topped into the story there? That that or the song? That's like an extended version of the Queen bicycle race. Oh yes, extended version by by Scott Douglas Powell. No, it, I had nothing to do with that actually. Okay. Uh, okay, very well, very good. Very good. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, sir, here we are moving on to story number three. So, story three. Let's uh, have a nice romp through the adventure of the Priory School. You got some publication information for me, Josh, on this, the fifth, fifth, fifth story from The uh, Return of Sherlock Holmes. Indeed, sirrah. First published in Colliers on 30th of January, 1904 in the U.S., and then... As fitting, you know, since he's a British fictional character in the Strand magazine in February 1904 mm-hmm. in the UK. Mm-hmm. Goodreads has a couple of tidbits about it. Nice story, says one, but less engaging, yet the end was the most unpredictable. Sorry, do it, that one again. Nice story, but less engaging, yet the end was the most unpredictable. Okay, right. It was interesting until then, it wasn't. And then they stopped absorbing the plot. Too bad it started pretty good and then got boring. (laughs) And then, I enjoyed this one more than the previous two. This one is a classic old tale of criminal plans getting out of hand and going too far. And of course, shows how twisted some people's family values and rationalization will go to serve their own self-interest. This Uh guy gets uh it. Yeah. This guy gets it. He, he he gets it. He gets it. He gets something. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I it's interesting. I see this as a story about values, actually. Yeah. Is that it? Is that all you got for me? That's the Goodreads. Yeah. Okay. I usually, a... I usually pick two or three or four. So let's let's uh, see what's so great about uh, the Priory School. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see these family values being put on display and and how we can <laughs> dissect them. <laughs> In a, uh, in a in in a social cultural analysis. Okay, let's see if we can do that. The adventure of the Priory School, of the many illustrious and decorated clients to grace the consulting room of two two one B, few Watson tells us at the opening of this tale were as memorable as Doctor Thornycroft Huxtable, described at first as a ponderous piece of wreckage. After bursting into the room and collapsing on the floor, Dr. Huxtable regains his composure with the help of a pillow, some brandy, milk and biscuits. And a pudding pot. A pudding pot. (laughs) Milk and biscuits, which sounds a bit like Santa Claus during this holiday season, before launching into his story. What's the problem? Sorry for the Bill Cosby reference. I apologize to all our our listeners. I got a couple coming in my next line. Oh, dear. What's the problem with Dr. Huxtable, I hear you ask? Did Theo cheat on an English test? Has Vanessa started dating a white boy? Did Denise get another piercing? Or has the good doctor himself suffered public ridicule for a litany of personal indiscretions? Well, neither, in fact. This isn't the same Dr. Huxtable. But you'd be forgiven for confusing parts of this story with the sitcom. Allow me to explain. Huxtable is the headmaster of the Priory School near Mackleton in the north of England. And boy, is he dealing with a pickle. Holmes claims to be too busy to help out, but quickly changes his tune when he learns of the stakes and the rewards. 
Recently, Lord Saltire, the son of the Duke of Holderness, who, by the way, sounds like a total prick, uh, began yeah. his preparatory education at the Priory School, and wouldn't you know it, someone's gone and nabbed him. Yeah, much like Alexander Holder in the Barrel Coronet, Huxtable's afraid for his reputation and responsibility of care after this prized acquisition goes missing. While in the earlier story it's a diadem, this time the item sought for reclaiming is a royal heir. The Duke has issued a £5,000 reward to anyone who can share the location of the boy and another £1,000 for the name of the offenders. Well, before you can say choo-choo, get on board, Holmes agrees to help, despite his busyness, and hops aboard a train that delivers he and Watson to the Peak District by the evening. There are, however, some other features to this case that stand out, like family squabble, for instance. It would appear that the Duke is a bit of a dick. He's a big dick, actually, and he doesn't treat his son terribly well. As such, when Mom and Dab separated, Lord Saltire sent his juvenile sympathies more with his mother, who's now cosily set up in the south of France. And then, there's a geography of the crime scene itself. Who, <coughs> pardon me, the Duke's son could only have been taken from the dormitory window some feet off the ground, only accessible by an ivy stock. Other sleeping boys in the adjoining room would have been interrupted by a direct approach to the bedroom. Curiously, Heidegger, the school's German master, went missing too, and there's a whackload of talk about bicycles as the means of travel or abduction. Charitable leftovers, we guess, from our last adventure. Well, the official search, according to Huxtable, has centered around Liverpool for some reason, and Holmes encourages the doctor to keep everyone pointed in that direction for the time being. As we've seen before, part of Sherlock's modus operandi involves sending out or feeding on red herrings, and this story offers him several. Anyways, all these thoughts and more jostle about in Holmes's mind as he journeys north towards Mackleton. Watson was probably just playing solitaire or something. He's as good as feckless in this story. When our heroes reach the Priory School, they meet both the Duke and his secretary, James Wilder. The physical contrast between the two is striking. Where the Duke is tall and stately, slow, angular, misshapen of nose, think, I guess, like a Jim Henson creation for the Dark Crystal. Anyway, Wilde is more nimble, sharp, and mobile. Well, there's an iciness about the meeting at first, which accustomed readers to Holmes will pick up on. We sense pretty quickly that the Duke's a little grieved for the notice of his son's abduction to have reached the lofty and surgical heights of Holmes's radar, as though he had been hoping for a lower profile. Eh, strange. Yeah, the hints are fairly hammered into the pages here, but it doesn't distract from the enjoyment of the scene. Holmes's own suspicions are confirmed when he states, in the presence of all, that he has instructed the police to turn their attention to the south of France and the attitudes of both men, particularly Wilder's, eases in its aggression. Herring's sent to sea. Holmes prepares his attack. He rocks into Watson's room after being away for the first afternoon on location with an ordnance map and a full pipe ready to act. Having lost a few days in the hunt already, it's clear that this will be no armchair investigation. Referring to the map, he informs his companion that he's already made inquiries with the local officer and rural community that have been helpful in ruling out some directions of the compass. So they set out, following the ebb and flow of a bicycle track on a path immediately behind the Priory School, and after a few false starts and stops, they arrive at a bloody gorse bush that yields both bicycle and body of the bashed-up Heidegger. Yeah, the school's German master. Well, Watson notices his skull has been severely cracked and his bedclothes are still on. All signs point to this man having left campus quickly and in pursuit of the boy or the kidnappers of both. A little too conveniently, a peasant lifting Pete nearby, almost like he's just been plucked from a Chekhov play, 
It was just available to bring a message back to Dr. Huxtable regarding the dead Master Heidegger, which allowed Holmes the moral freedom to execute his next plan. Feigning, feigning an ankle injury, he hobbles along to the Fighting Cock Inn where he puts the screws to one Reuben Hayes, a surly publican and knave, before James Bonding in his stables for signs of bicycle wheels or other such mischief. And at this stage, the story speeds up. Holmes and Watson's spot the Duke's secretary riding like a madman towards the inn where Reuben Hayes had just boisterously threatened them. And from a distance, they observe Wilder enter the inn from its private entrance, and the bucks begin to drop. Holmes spies through the window, and all becomes clear for him. The detail, of course, of what he saw is kept from the reader until a few pages later, but it doesn't take a lot to surmise that the Duke's son is actually being kept there. Armed with the confidence to challenge, Holmes returns to Holderness Hall the next morning and cheekily requests his £6,000 reward. The Duke thinks he's joshing, until Holmes accuses him of being involved in the whole fiasco. Cornered then and ashamed, the Duke reveals all. Instead of being his secretary, James Wilder is, in fact, an illegitimate child from a previous relationship. Wilder has always harbored a grudge about being the firstborn, yet entitled to nothing more than a cushy job by his father's side, so he hatched the abduction plan with Hayes' assistance. Using some official envelopes, switching correspondence from the Duke to the Duchess was easy, and it was good bait for the doting son, who already sides with his mother, and poor Arthur fell quickly into the trap. Wilder intended to use the ransom to force his father's hand at breaking the entail so that he could be heir to the estate. So where does this dead German master Heidegger come into it all, you might be wondering? Well, he was obviously in pursuit of Lord Saltire for some crazy unknown reason, and his abductor, on that fateful night, and fall victim to the violence of Hayes when he got too close. Murder had never been part of the secretary's plan, and Holmes's discovery of his body, sent by this Chekhovian peat peasant, shocked Wilder into confessing the full story. Sherlock runs the sorry duke through a final guilt ride of social equestrian before pocketing the £6,000 and heading back to Watson. <laughs> we leave Holderness Hall feeling sorry for the sickness it breeds within the family and, for us, perhaps grateful for the simple problems in our own middle-class lives. Yay for those. Indeed, yay for the middle-class problems. Eloquently and succinctly put, my friend. Yeah, listen, before we get started... How did you, f what did you think of this German character? Like, what was he there for? Is he just like a MacGuffin? Oh yeah, he's 100% a MacGuffin. He's a, I, I feel his character, I feel sorry for him. He's this German, like, uh, schoolmaster who probably is lucky to be where he is based on his situation socially in England. And uh, he sees one of, one of the, the Duke's son running away to go to see his mother. I'm gonna get fired for this and lose my livelihood. So I'm gonna go get this get this kid back, this stupid effing kid. Do you think but that's then, how? Do you think that's how he viewed it? Like, like he's looking out the window because we're told his window faces uh, Lord Saltire's window. Do you think that he just saw something happen to this kid? He's like, ah, oh, fuck. Someone's got to do it. It might as well be the German that nobody respects. Absolutely, I guarantee you that was what happened. Well, it's interesting because I was looking to find out. And obviously, I know a certain amount of this just because it's only 15, 20 years away from or 15 years away from the uh, um, you know, First World War. Well, 10 years, actually, a decade away. But I mean, what, what's your impression of how Germans were viewed by the English aristocracy or commoner? Well, back then, I don't think they were as bad because, I mean, this was before World War One. Right. And this is when their families were still kind of still kind of related in that in that fashion, <laughs> right? The connection to the crown. But then again, you have to consider that the Boer War is probably going on now too, right? So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so I, I think there's always going to be, you know, Krauts versus 
Jerry, sorry, versus, you know, Brit's kind of attitude going on, you know, that's always been going around for, on for centuries. So. so you don't sense really any amplification of that in this story here. I mean, the, the guy is, is kind of like a fallen hero in a sense. He is, but he kind of gets no there, there, there. But there's, but there's no final words for him at all. None, He's just no, a none. victim. Just He's some just a victim. Just some peasant. And, He's described as a peasant that brings word back to the duke. Uh, yeah. I mean, as a plot point, that's that's important because it it gave up uh, the goat, so to speak. Uh, Wilder, when he learned of the death of this German guy, confessed all because it wasn't part of his plan. So he confessed to his dad exactly what happened, but. I don't know. Like, it just—it just seems kind of weird. Like, he's just fucking there. Take him out of the story, and all you've got is Sherlock Holmes still with Watson chasing after a bicycle track. He was still as significant of a human being to make an inf- to, to, to that his death compelled Wilder to do what he did. Hmm. You know, but of course the Duke wants to prevent all scandal from getting out, so he covered it up. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right, cool. So, uh, yeah, we've lit our pipes. They're uh, still smoking away here. We are. Have you moved off from your Frappalappuccino or whatever it was? Yeah, now I'm on into the peppermint one you suggested. Mm-hmm. And how do you find it? Uh, pepperminty. Pepperminty. Oh, wait, that's the cough lozenge I'm having right now instead. <laughs> I for- what do you think of the principles here in this story, pal? Uh, again, I-, I felt just as average. Uh, in this mm-hmm. in this tale, uh, they were top of their game. Well, Holmes was in this particular case. I mean, solving the case, and I did like Holmes kind of like trolling the uh, the the uh, the Duke at the end. You know, like I like his sense of justice. It's like, yeah, I don't care if you're a Duke. You're there. You know, like I, I don't care if you're trying to c- cover th- this up. You're culpable. You mm-hmm. know, like I kind I just why I kind of gave it a four as a total mark mm-hmm. for the principles. Yep. Because I like I liked Holmes's like uh, class warfare, even though you yeah, think he'd be in the upper class against the Duke. I thought that was really well done. Mm-hmm. It was good. What do you think of Holmes at the beginning of this? At the beginning? At the beginning of the story, yeah. Like what in his engagement with Huxtable? Yeah. The way he turns was... face, like so he he does turn quite quickly from going. Oh, I'm very busy. Haven't you heard of this? And haven't you heard of that? Well, yeah. I mean, the guy's presence. He was so like you know. He's just kind of like bedraggled and and stuff. And, and this is, but it's a, but it's a typical kind of turnaround, right? Going. Oh, I'm not interested in this case. I have a, a bigger case I'm working on. Oh, but your case intrigues me. So, well, it's maybe, not. See, this I is. I wonder what... though because it's the, okay. it's, the, it's, the, it's the context of the case that might have intrigued him when he actually heard what he had to say. Yes, I think I think you're onto something. The context, because you know we've seen this before. Holmes likes to be able to get one up on a royalty, you know, or on peers. Uh, he yes. likes he likes being able to do that. But plus six thousand pounds potentially. Let me explain to you what kind of money that is. Okay, um, six thousand pounds is significant. Well, yes, five thousand pounds, which is the original offer, right? That's the original offer, and then the extra thousand. Well, okay. So in today's economy, right? In today's economy. One thousand pounds, at in this story, is worth about sixty thousand pounds in today. Okay, so five thousand would be worth about three hundred thousand, plus the extra hundred or the extra thousand pounds for Holmes to name the guy or to actually find the guy. That would pop Holmes's total to a whopping three hundred sixty thousand, or about six hundred thousand dollars in today's money. Now that is a wow. shit ton of money for one case, 
And the, the I, I love the fact that Holmes says, I'm really busy. And then as soon as he finds out, he's like, yeah, yeah. you know what? Let's do this. Let's do this, Watson. Yeah. Uh, I like think a, that a, that's... about face, right? It's about face. But if you think about depth of character, right? If, if all we know of Holmes is the detective who isn't interested in anything but, you know, the work itself, which is his own pleasure, like, and his own kind of like obsession, his need, his hunger to just work on cases, that, that sort of... Um, OCDsness, yeah. I love that here we get a little bit of yeah. Holmes, Holmes is a guy that I can relate to. Six hundred thousand dollars, I could, I could, I could do that. You know, Holmes is yeah. like, I'm gonna make this work for me. So, what, what does he get? He gets to take advantage of a duke. He gets to solve yeah. a problem. He gets to make himself and his name known better. You know, he collects these on his resume. These types of high profile cases, yes. right? Yes. And. Uh, he likes to show off too. I don't remember what story it was off the top of my head, but wasn't there a story where one of the guys underrates him and Holmes is like, well, I'll actually have you know that I helped the king of Scandinavia and I did blah, 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 and I did blah, blah, blah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. And so that was, I, I like yeah. this. I like the fact that Holmes just decides to switch quickly when he hears about the price. It makes him human. It makes him interesting. Um, I think your mark of four is warranted. I also agree with what you said that the um, the Watson... Well, I mean, I said it in my plot summary. You said it a few moments ago. Watson doesn't do very much here. He actually does nothing here. Um, <laughs> he, he's just kind of like the dumb companion that runs around with him. And, uh, and, and in fact, at one point, he has a real, uh, oh, we'll never get this Holmes type moment, you know? And Holmes is like, just shut up and calm down. Like, I'm going yeah. to tell you right out, okay? And I haven't done this in a long time. Like, I'm going back. I'm going back in short storyland. I'm going all the way back to, you know what? I'm going right back to a scandal in Bohemia. I haven't, uh-huh. I haven't given five out of five for the principles since then. But I thought Holmes was so good in this story that even oh, wow. even Watson's nothing. I thought was still enough. I mean, I love, like I said, the way he turns and the way he says, yeah, maybe money and the opportunity to get one over the Royals, even though he never states it like that. Maybe like you say, he's just uh, attracted to, you know, the opportunity to do this. That's fine. I love how he plays people in this. I love, like you were saying, the way he plays a Duke at the end. And he's like, yeah, well, you know, you still are culpable in this. You're still a dick. But the way he fakes the ankle injury, I thought was quite clever to try to see if there's a bicycle at the inn and what's going on there. Then he kind of does the espionage in the stables. And I thought that Holmes was really good in this story. Top of his game, yeah. Top of his game and engagingly enough to solve the case, right? I mean, yes, there's serendipity involved in just being able to follow the false clues of the bike tires and stumble upon the body in the gorse bush. And by the way, uh, Conan Doyle in his own autobiography uh, wrote... Uh, not an apology, but a, I guess an acknowledgement that he was wrong in that. That's the, the the suspicion that, or not suspicion, I guess, what am I trying to say? The belief that a back tire will leave a heavier imprint. Therefore, he could, yeah. fall, he could trace the Dunlop thing. You know, that whole thing is, is all false. And he, oh. igno- he acknowledged that, but... I was like, I found that so BS. Like, how was someone back then when bicycles were were just really just becoming a thing, man? How yeah. could someone have such an encyclopedic knowledge? Of like uh, bicycle treads, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm, I'm blethering on, but I thought Holmes was fantastic in this story. Uh, one of the best of the entire canon so far for me. Um, his, his involvement here, I, I thought he was fun. He was sarcastic. He was he was engaging, clever, a step ahead. And although I knew some of the signs he was playing, I still thought they were executed well against these guys, like like uh, Reuben Hayes. You know, I liked him a lot. 
but I do appreciate that Watson does shit all here. He does nothing. Like he's he's a he's a terrible co-pilot. He, he in fact he's a distraction because he cries and moans about never getting it right. You know. Yeah, you convinced me to raise up a point five with the uh, principals, especially with Holmes. And sometimes when I when I read about you know how much money that was offered to him, and sometimes the amount I guess in, in pounds and at the time considered for inflation, I don't realize how much money that he's being offered there. Right. So mm. I sometimes miss little cues like that. And things that made me reconsider, you know, the fact of how much money that he was offered. And this was a rich case and stuff. And he took advantage of it in that fashion, you know. Like, it was very, it was very, um, an, a good, good character moment for him in that way. So I think things like that are really important to catch. So I, I, I justify my 0.5 move to 4.5. Okay, no problem. Uh, <clears throat> let's just read but, that little. But Watson was abysmal in this, so I don't give yeah, it a 0.5. No, I appreciate that. I, and I, I can understand why. Uh, let me just read this bit for you. Um, this is when he and uh, Watson are trying to reconstruct what's going on. Let us continue our reconstruction. He meets his death five miles from the school. This is when they're outside on the bike trail. Uh, not by bullet, mark you, which even a lad might conceivably discharge, but by a savage blow dealt by a vigorous arm. The lad then had a companion in his flight, and the flight was a swift one since it took five miles before an expert cyclist could overtake them. Yet we survey the ground around the scene of the tragedy. What do we find? A few cattle tracks, nothing more. I took a wide sweep round, and there is no path within 50 yards. Another cyclist could have done, could have had nothing to do with the actual murder, nor were there any human footprints. Holmes, I cried, this is impossible. Admirable, he said, a most illuminating remark. It is impossible, as I stated, and therefore I must in some respect have stated it wrong. Yet you saw for yourself. Can you suggest any fallacy? He could not have fractured his skull in a fall? In a morass, Watson? I'm at my wit's end. Tut tut. We have solved some worse problems. At least we have plenty of material if we can only use it. Come then, and having ex got exhausted the Palmer tire, let us see what the Dunlop with the patched cover has to offer us. There's, there's kind of like a paternal come along, and I love the use, and I know it's simple, but I, I like the use of the plural pronoun we, as though Watson is still part of this team, even though he sucks. And Holmes, <laughs> it, it's not Watson, it's Holmes' dialogue that's telling us this. Like, Holmes still views Watson as an important partner. It's, it, it's interesting, you know? I mean, there's a significance to a team spirit here, even if Watson yeah. isn't isn't on board. And so I like Holmes here. He's 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 at his best, like we said. Um he isn't down on the ground, you know, licking blood and thread like he was in a study in Scarlet. But, you know, he's he's doing a lot more and he's working people interestingly. I, I can't say any more about it, really, but uh, that I'm sticking with my five because I don't go five often. And I feel like when I do, I got to stay there. Yeah, yeah, stay there. That's, that's great. So what about the investigation? I gave it a four. Um, I, I, I thought that like it was a good story and the twist and turn pretty well. Um, but I didn't think it was anything spectacular, minus the big character moments that we've already discussed so far. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I went 4.5. Okay. So this is building up to be a great story for me so far. Uh, 4 is still a very good mark too, but I went 4.5. Why don't you talk me through your 4, and uh, I'll talk you through my extra point, or a half point. Uh, I found the case inter interesting enough, and I... I Kind of wish that uh, uh, I guess we're going into the perpetrators a little bit, but I found Wilder fascinating for sure, and 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 the Duke was a typical Duke type uh, aristocratic dickhead character, but 
I don't know. Like I just found that um, it was just a very straightforward story, and uh, I think it's just I just I, I think going back to the principles there, and I, I, I think I missed some of the nuances of this story that uh, you seem to have picked up, in, in my opinion. I don't necessarily think that's true. Uh, I think it helps when <clears throat> I certainly think it helps writing a plot summary on a story. I'll tell you that much. I agree with that, hundred percent. But that doesn't mean that you're going to be you're going to be doing that story a high mark no. because I didn't do it for the dancing men and you didn't really do it no, for but you solitary cyclists. You have, but once you've already done a, mm -hmm. uh, you have in, you have like in your, in your mind, you know, like uh, you have in your mind, uh, you're able to express what you feel about that story. Once you do a plot summary on it more so than if you hadn't already and what, what really bothered you or what didn't bother you about it, you know? And, and when you come to a story and there's things that are going to trigger for you regardless if you're doing a plot summary or not. And uh, I guess... Now, I have a confession here to make, too. Okay. Is that I've actually read this story a long time ago. Mm -hmm. uh, about mm -hmm. two years ago. I, I just read it randomly. as one of the stories on uh, at work on the Gutenberg Press things that we have. Oh, yeah. Uh, which was online. So I, I already knew the outcome of the story. So maybe because of that and because you were doing the summary... Maybe I didn't. I didn't invest myself as much as the second time reading it, and I I, I, I take confession on, on on that. It might have taken you out of the. It, it might yeah. It might have taken you out of the process a bit. It may instead have just been a story you were reading for the sake of completion, then, you know, wanting to really get into it. Filling in, it was kind of like filling in the gray areas, you know, in mm. in, in, in that particular respect. But no, I, I thought the case was very well put together. It was a really good mystery and had twists and turns. I liked how the you know the the German being found dead, not at the beginning of the narrative, but midway through the narrative. Uh, how that caused more because makes you wonder where is the kid? Where is the kid? I mean, regardless, we have a missing kid here, and that always brings some sort of dr dramatic mo 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 momentum to readers who are not sociopaths. You know what I mean? That's right. So, yeah. So I, I think that was uh, compelling enough to keep it going, and, and even in that in that way. And then we get to find out that the perpetrators were in fact employed by the Duke. And then there's this whole, you know, uh, covering up like you know the, the the family skeletons all pulling together here all at once here, and just showing, uh, justifying I guess Sherlock Holmes is. Uh, uh, contempt for the aristocracy and uh, kind of for the reader as well and it gives kind of a very populist uh, feel to all the proceedings mm -hmm. yeah and I that's mean, why I, that's why I give it a four I mean that's why I thought it was a really good story and it is and a four is a good mark uh, the reason I liked it a half stage better than that uh, I, I do feel that for the best Sherlock Holmes stories he and Watson need to be working a little more closely than they do in this one Okay. And so that's part of the reason why I've taken away that half point. The other part is because I found Heidegger's role a little bit of a distraction, as we've mm. already discussed. Uh, it didn't add much to it. And I don't mind you adding complicating flavors to, you know, uh, send off tracks or something. And at the beginning, sure, I was thinking maybe Heidegger had something to do with the abduction. I think that's what Doyle yes. wanted us to think. You know, he wanted us to think that. Uh, but in the end, it, it never came through to that. I like no, the story he... for, sorry, what were you going to say? You know, it was like at the end, he didn't have to be a German schoolmaster. He could mm -hmm. just been like any schoolmaster who was caught up in it, you know. And That's right. I think I think it was just to add kind of a uh, a moral price to what the Duke and uh, what uh, Wilder had done and what the Duke was covering up. Yeah, but that's why I was curious uh, to see if you knew anything about uh, England's relationship with uh, with Germans or or Europeans 
uh, of this ilk, I suppose, philosopher types, because if there was some hardship, if there was some grievance there held uh, by the commoner or the uh, aristocrat, then perhaps we would be able, <laughs> perhaps we would be able to understand <laughs> why Heidegger was a German or why why the guy was a German. Because you know, would we in contemporary readership uh, of the time? Was, was pretty big. I mean, in the eighteen in the eighteenth century, nineteen. Well, century, Heide- Heidegger Heidegger was a philosopher, right? Yeah, that's right, and a Kant and mm-hmm. all those people. I'm, I'm just wondering, like, if if we're meant to have seen him as an enemy, and would that have been easier to see him as a perpetrator because he was German? I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. But anyway, it doesn't I, really matter. I think so. Like, yeah, did they label German? Give they make him? Why was his nationality German? Exactly. Was this a, was this a thing where uh, most these masters were German because of the German philosophy they wanted to put in the schooling, mm-hmm. because of the strong work ethic the culture has. Uh, or the or the hard kind of Protestant kind of upbringing, you know what I mean? Um, what what exactly um, was there? A, is the point of making the character a German other than you know to just to kind of dismiss him almost, or even create a red herring of of his, of his involvement? Oh no, the Germans are involved, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway. <clears throat> Um, what about the gypsy involvement? Like that's another red herring, right? That was thrown another, into it too. Another red herring. We got Germans and gypsies. We got all these ethnic groups coming in here that are basically places to blame because Arthur Conan Doyle doesn't want us to go to the obvious, obvious, obvious uh, reason going on. Goings on is um, is the Duke and his son and his bastard mm-hmm. son. Mm-hmm. Well, does he not Walter want us to, already, or does he not Walter want us to yet? Suspicious. At the beginning, right? That that whole con- that whole conversation at the, very, at the very beginning, it's it's put in there. You got to think that when Holmes, when Arthur Conan Doyle, when he writes a story, uh, every little bit of information he puts in there is pertinent to the investigation. If Holmes has an encounter with someone and something is off to that encounter, or Holmes notices something, he's not Conan Doyle is not going to make that a red herring for the for the reader. That's a clue. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And I've learned, you know, we've learned to pick up his clues. And so already Wilder was already suspicious for me already. Mm-hmm. So that means that when I look at German and the gypsies, more ethnic red herrings to blame things on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I like I liked the story. Some of those complexities work, but Heidegger's character himself kind of took me out of it a bit. Um, there were also gypsies shacked up in the speckled band that did nothing. You know, they, yes. they had nothing to do, apart from the fact that they played a little bit more into uh, the, what was, what was the doctor's Super, name? Roylott? Super, Roylott, yeah. They played into the superstition. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, the way he kind of led his life a bit. Um, it kind of reminded me of like Dracula, you know, having gypsies mm-hmm. work, for, work for him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe they got that from Bram Stoker. I don't know. No, he had a bunch of gypsies working for him in uh, the Hammer films too, uh, or a couple of them. Uh, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm still trying to get on with this. I apologize. Basically, I liked the story. I liked the investigation. Holmes at the heart of it was good, but I liked the way that we had the royal involvement and Holmes wanting to kind of take advantage of both that and the monetary reward. I like the fact that we've got a big school that we don't get a lot of interest in. We don't get a lot of description of really, apart from the, uh, the scene that Holmes and Watson check out uh, the abduction scene. But then we get this interesting uh, chase on a, uh, on a bicycle, you know, or them chasing the bike. I like the idea of the, the kind of more uh, environment 
kind of like a quick revisit to Baskerville and what made that so ominous. We yeah. got um, the inn and the innkeeper. And then you got these stately rooms that they're shown into when they're talking to the Duke. Uh, I like the fact that Watson is kind of a lackey in the sense that he has nothing more to offer when Holmes is at his very best. Holmes says at one point, uh, I'll call you early tomorrow morning and you and I will try, if we can, to throw some light upon the mystery. Again, there's that teamwork thing, you know, um, and I it's like also, that. It's also kind of, don't you think, a bit, a bit of a uh, hint of hypocrisy by Arthur Conan Doyle here, where you have Holmes being petty and trolling this duke, you know, who, who's used to having people, who has his own bastard son doing errands for him basically right like as as like his assistant mm -hmm. and then you have watson who is holmes assistant right so there's kind of a hypocrisy being suggested out here you know between holmes the elite crime solver and then watson is lackey right and then you have the duke and his lackeys and i think it's kind of a little bit of a hypocritical uh situation do you think that's deliberate on Doyle's I, I, I don't know i don't know i i he is a bit of a populist i can see it in his writing the guy does had to have Sherlock Holmes claim that he wants the American flag and the British flag to be one. <laughs> so, uh, so I mean, you know, who knows? But mm. uh, I think it's a fair observation. Oh, it certainly is. That's why I ask if you think it was deliberate. I, I don't. I don't know. It's hard to say. Okay. Uh, let's let me continue on that passage because I also yes. think there's a lot of good writing in this particular story, and um, this might be one of the points on which you're missed if you feel that you haven't really read it with the same radar that you could have earlier on. Uh, yeah. So the day was just breaking when I woke to find the long, thin form of Holmes by my bedside. He was fully dressed and had apparently already been out. There's a creepiness about that. You know, like Holmes just standing above Watson. It's like a vaporism. Yeah. Uh, I've done the lawn and the bicycle shed, said he. I've also had a ramble through the ragged shaw. Now, Watson, there's a cocoa ready in the next room. I must beg you to hurry, for we have a great day before us. His eyes shone, and his cheek was flushed with the exhilaration of the master workman who sees his work lies ready before him. A very different Holmes, this active alert man, from the introspective and pallid dreamer of Baker Street. I felt, as I looked upon that supple figure, alive with nervous energy, that it, was indeed, yeah, yeah, that it was indeed a strenuous day that awaited us. And yet it opened in the blackest disappointment. With high hopes, we struck across the peaty russet moor, intersected with a thousand sheep paths until we came to the broad light green belt which marked the morass between us and Holderness. Certainly, if the lad had gone homewards, he must have passed this, and he would not pass it without leaving his trace. But no sign of him or the German could be seen. With a darkening face, my friend strode along the margin, eagerly observant of every muddy stain upon the mossy surface, sheep marks there were in profusion. And at one place, some miles down, cows had left their tracks. Nothing more. Uh, you remember later in the story, Holmes calls himself an idiot. And we're not quite sure why he does that. One of the annotations was saying that one of uh, a potential reason for him calling himself an idiot was that he miss, missed that whole idea about um, f uh, hoof prints. And why, if there were cows there on the fields, they didn't see any cow shit anywhere. Yeah. I don't know if you if if you made anything of that, but that's an interesting little point that may might just have been a convenient little flea that buzzed up when Conan Doyle was thinking about how he could you know put some more character writing into it. But uh, I, th I thought that was interesting. And Holmes has a great C three PO moment here. I'll just read this last little bit. Check number one, said Holmes, looking gloomily over the rolling expanse of the moor. There's another morass down yonder and a narrow neck between. Hello, hello. What have we here? 
We'd come on some small black ribbon of pathway. In the middle of it, clearly marked on the sodden soil, was the track of a bicycle. Hurrah! I cried. We have it! But Holmes was shaking his head, and his face was puzzled and expectant rather than joyous. A bicycle, certainly, but not the bicycle, said he. I am familiar with 42 different impressions left by tyres. This, as you perceive, is a Dunlop with a patch upon its outer cover. Heidegger's tyres were palmers, leaving longitudinal stripes. Availing, the mathematician, math, mathematical master was sure upon the point. Therefore, it's not Heidegger's track. Like, I am familiar with 42 different impressions left by yeah. tyres. That's a little stupid. But it's fun to see him. It's fun to see him quote his own excellence from time to time. Yeah, exactly. It's like sometimes you got to self censor yourself, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, and and that I mean that really begins the the um, the mistake that Doyle acknowledges about the emphasis he put on the back tire and how that obviously suggested the speed and uh, anyway, blah blah blah. But then, yeah, you know, I like this. We're, we're really hanging a long time on the investigation, but I like the change of the settings. I like the way Holmes plays people, and I like the way he takes advantage of, uh, of a monetary situation. I find that very human of him. Plus, yep. he's on the top of his game. Uh, faking that ankle injury was brilliant. Um, and I knew because I had read um, the Rygat Squires that he wasn't above faking illness to get a response from someone, you know, and nope. on two on two different occasions, he deliberately tells people he's suspicious of that he's instructed the police to continue their search here, or now we have a lead in Liverpool we're following. I'm just here to kind of walk around and check things out. That puts Wilder at ease, particularly, which yes. helps which helps the reader respect the clues that Doyle's given us. So I think it's a good investigation. Some really great dialogue in here. Uh, good interplay between characters. Yep. There are some stupid and convenient moments, particularly with the peat farmer who's just there so that they can stay in the field. Like, why the hell didn't Holmes go, if this was a peat farmer working just a couple hundred yards away from the dead body of Heidegger, why didn't he go question him, this peasant, you know? Yeah, that was kind of convenient, yeah, just for the sake of that revelation, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, just, it's, like an, it's almost like a modern version of like a, a film or television continuity error, you know? Mm-hmm. Or, a plot, yeah, so, or a plot hole, as they say. Plot hole, yeah. Uh, let's move on to perpetrators. Uh, what, what, what was your final mark for the for, for the investigations? Sorry, it's been so long, isn't it? You yeah. went for a four, and I went for a four point five. Yeah, I yeah, I'm gonna stay at four. Um, yeah. I but I appreciate the passion you, you got for it, and uh, it made me reconsider it. Uh, for, uh, and I, I might uh, give it another perusal again, you know, just to uh, see if I can fill any more any more cracks. Okay, so what about the perpetrators? I, I, the perpetrators I, I, I liked. I didn't think they were great by any means. I, I wish Welder was a little more fleshed out. Um, he, he was. They were kind of like working as very convenient plot devices. The characters, while the investigation, the story was great, and the environs was really was really good in in this particular tale. The perpetrators I found were just aristocratic dickheads. And then you have one who was like a <laughs> who was just like a social climber, who or was trying to be right and. Uh, it was different from what we had before. It wasn't about some woman being held against her will. So, I mean, that was refreshing. Uh, but at the same time, nothing overly credible either. So I think 3.5 is fair for the perpetrators. All right. Um, I went for a four. Okay. Because I thought that, uh, well, I included the character of Reuben Hayes as well. Oh, yeah, as the, Reuben as the Hayes. Two. Yeah, that's right. And I appreciate he, he could be a secondary character, so maybe you'll include him in that. But oh, I, no, he, he killed Heidegger. So I mean, Yeah, he, he killed Heidegger, and he did actually house the boy. 
I, when I, you I hire thought... like thugs, you know, sh- shit goes bad. Shit happens. You know, I guess that's what he's all about. <laughs> and he is a thug. Uh, but I thought he was interesting. He's a cantankerous little fuck. And he knows that Holmes is on to him, even if he doesn't know who Holmes is necessarily. Um, yeah, I liked him as well. And so I thought him plus the other two was enough to bring him up to a four. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. But I do wonder, like, and this perhaps is another weakness of the story, which kept me from giving it full marks. How did Wilder uh, and, and, and Hayes get together? Is this just a proximity relationship because the estate is near enough the inn? Like, how did they, how did these two circles meet? Yeah, I can kind of see kind of like Wilder just wanting to get away, you know, and to get drunk or something. Yeah, maybe that's it. That's how they meet. That, that, yeah. that to me makes sense. Because now, he's a sourpuss about, you know, his mom leaving, uh, or sorry, about him not getting any money. Yeah. Uh, maybe he just spends his nights on the lash picking up chicks and stuff, yeah. It's kind of like uh, Dial M for Murder, you know, where you have this scene where the, the, the killer, the, well, the guy who's going to have his wife killed, invites this guy over through like an ad in the paper and they're like old school chums or they or they went to the same school or they talk about people that they knew and then halfway through the conversation will you kill my wife you know what i mean like that just <laughs> yeah. seems how how it would have happened uh-huh. yeah okay that's a good parallel to make actually yeah i can see that uh what used to be a convenience yeah becomes a, a contract yeah exactly cool okay so what did you go for you went for a 3.5 i went for, for a five. four uh, environment, Josh. There's a lot of environments we've talked about here. Some of them aren't we, really sculpted, though. So, what do you think? I, I think 3.5 instead of four is my full final mark for the environments. Um, as you said, we got a lot of better environments in this story than in the past couple of stories that we've read, and so I really appreciated that when it came like in the Moors. That old Baskerville feel was kind of to this story, and I just felt that there was a lot more to this story. That there was more that was possible to explore. So it just, it just found like there was bigger scope. Uh, overall, and I think that really helped the narrative too of, of uh, the, um, the of the Priory School. So I think environment of three point five is fair. Probably, mm-hmm. probably maybe a four would be I think total fairness, but I'll say with my three point five. All right. Well, that's okay. Um, I went three point five as well. So the train is on the same track uh, with me and you on that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, let's go on then to finish it up with the secondary characters. I think there was a good spread of them all. I gave four on that. Uh, you got the Duke. You got the you got, uh, you, got you got the Duke. Uh, you got poor Heidegger. You got Thornycroft there, uh, Huxtable, and then, uh, well, I guess he he's a perpetrator. I was gonna I was gonna I was gonna consider our uh, what's his name, um, Ruben Ruben yeah. Hayes, but. Uh, I think there was a pretty rich supporting cast in, in this tale. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I went for a four on them, and it uh, brings me to a total of 21 out of 25 for this story. What'd you go for? I, I, as I said, supporting cast, I went for four. Oh, sorry. Okay, I didn't get that. Okay, well, that brings you to a 19.5. So I like this one a fraction and a half better than you. That's, well, I mean, it, it happens. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's good that it happens. We, you know, we, yeah. we need to have that. Um, I, I think that if I was at a push, I would probably have put the uh, the secondary characters maybe even at 4.5. But uh, because I included two of them as perpetrators, I, I don't think I can do that in, in fairness. Yeah, so. uh, it's like you, you're split between them, right? That's, mm-hmm. how, that's how it works. Mm-hmm. I love the way, the way the story ends, though. And uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't if we didn't share a bit of that. Uh, just let me read this to you, okay? <clears throat> so, 
Holmes has just told the Duke and uh, well, the Duke's boy, basically the boy servant of uh, to, you know to go down to the fighting cocky and bring Lord Saltire home. Now, said Holmes, when the rejoicing lackey had disappeared, having secured the future, we can afford to be more lenient with the past. I'm not in an official position. There's no reason, so long as the ends of justice are served, why I should disclose all that I know. As to Hayes, I say nothing. The gallows awaits him, and what? And I would do nothing to save him from it. What he will divulge, I cannot tell, but I have no doubt that your grace could make him understand that it is to his interest to be silent. Now, let me ask you this. Hayes is on his way to the gallows. Why would he be silent? I don't understand that. Why would Reuben Hayes want to stay silent? I mean, what, what's the Duke going to do? Bribe him with what? I would say the Duke is going to commute his sentence probably to like uh, servitude or some penal servitude or something like that. Will the Duke be able to do that if he's pitched would, as Heidegger's killer? Uh, uh, he might be able to do his influence. That's what I'm thinking. Okay, maybe. All right. I just I can't see why a guy going to the gallows would want to hold on to his... Uh, his allegiance or, or, you know, his confidence. It doesn't make sense, but... Yeah. Anyway, uh, from the police point of view, he'll have kidnapped the boy for the purpose of ransom. If they do not themselves find out, I see no reason why I should prompt them to take a broader view. I would warn your grace, however, that he continued... that the continued presence of Mr. James Wilder in your household can only lead to misfortune. I understand that, Mr. Holmes, and it's already settled that he shall leave me forever and go to seek his fortune in Australia. Poor Australia, man. Every time it's mentioned in this canon, it's all about bad people going there, bad people dying there, ships full of bad people getting destroyed on their way there. Penal servitude. Penal servitude. In that case, Your Grace, since you have yourself stated that any unhappiness in your married life was caused by his presence, I would suggest that you make such amends as you can to the Duchess and that you try to resume those relations which have been so unhappily interrupted. So, Holmes recommending uh, reconciliation, like a marriage counselor there. That's interesting. That also I have arranged, Mr. Holmes. I wrote to the Duchess this morning. Well, in that case, said Holmes, rising. And and sending the bastard boy uh, over the other other side of the the planet, right? (laughs) The planet, yeah. I think that my friend and I can congratulate ourselves upon several most happy results from our little visit to the north. Like, all all during this... Sarcasm? I just picture Watson having, like, a pacifier in his mouth or sucking his thumb or something. He does so little in here. (laughs) Anyway, there's one other small point upon which I desire some light. This fellow Hayes has shod his horses with hooves or with shoes which counterfeited the tracks of cows. Was it from Mr. Wilder that he learned so extraordinary a device? The Duke stood and thought for a moment with a look of intense surprise on his face. Then he opened a door and showed us into a large room furnished as a museum. He led the way to a glass case in a corner and pointed to the inscription. These shoes, it ran, were dug up in the moat of Holderness Hall. They are for use of horses but they are shaped below with a cloven foot of iron so as to throw pursuers off the track. They are supposed to have belonged to some of the marauding barons of Holderness in the Middle Ages. Holmes opened the case. Moistening his finger, he passed it along the shoe. A thin film of recent mud was left upon his skin. Thank you, said he, as he replaced the glass. It is the second most interesting object that I have seen in the north. And the first? Holmes folded up his check, placed it carefully in his notebook. I'm a poor man, said he as he patted it affectionately and thrust it into the depths of his inner pocket. I, I, I like that ending. I like the fact that it starts with money and ends with money, which yeah. which makes it feel like a really, um, I don't know, it's a likable a story. Transac- a transactional nature kind of thing, yeah. It's like, yeah. it begins, it's like a check, uh, check offered, sorry. Chekhovian, uh, yeah. 
payment offered and payment and 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 payment received. Oh, sorry, I thought you were going somewhere with the aristotelic. Uh, no. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What do you what do you make of Holmes's kind of turning the blind eye towards what you know responsibilities with the police and all that? Like, do you think he? I mean, how does that sit with you? I mean, one of the things I like about Holmes is that in a story like this, you do see these shades of out for my selfishness, you know? I, yeah. But he's not a Batman. He's not a superhero who's going to do everything right all the time. No. He, he helps the Duke. He accepts that the Duke didn't know everything his his bastard son was up to. And so I think he lets him off the hook a bit. But do you not think that he has a responsibility to do and say a little more? Well, the, the thing is, is that is like if if Holmes does believe, as he mentions before, in the, in the greater good, then with the, with him with more money and wealth, when she can do, when she can purchase uh, new types of chemicals to test, or new way, new types of, or new books to purchase, or you know, just something to make his life better, so that he can do what he what what he does mm-hmm. uh, in a more comfortable, uh, more efficient basis, then that does serve the greater good in the end. So, what does he care if these little 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 indiscretions are kind of just kind of dampered down because mm-hmm. i think if anything holmes if he really 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 did not like something he would call it out and he would not go along with it so he obviously saw no threat whatsoever from things continuing with the way that that they were True. And I, th- I think i think he satisfied his own conscience uh in a gr- in, in a in a gray kind of way by telling him tell, telling the duke to send your bastard son away you know like him having having him at your house is just not a good thing, and uh, sending him over to Australia. I guess he realizes that the kid won't be a problem to anyone there anymore, and he'll either end up being a criminal or, and, and then out of anyone else's way, out of the Duke's way. It's just a way to get rid of that problem completely, right? Yeah, I appreciate that view, and I agree with you, particularly your comment. It's pragmatic. Uh, it's pragmatic, but what you said about the gray areas—it's in—it's in these gray areas that I find him a most interesting character. I, I suppose because a lot of Holmes, before I started reading him, had already become cliche. That these are the parts of his character that I'm interested in in discovering and interested in in talking about. These parts where, okay, he's not just a detective who knows everything. He's not just a genius deducer. He. He actually has human impulses to do for himself and to search out opportunities to manipulate. And I, I like reading that because that is the literary construction. Yeah. That's not but the postcard. He also knows his own limitations, too. I mean, think about it. Is he really going to pick a fight with a duke? And, and, and you know what I mean? Like, that could be damaging to him in the end. You know, like, why bother, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he knows there's nothing that he can do to prevent certain indiscretions from being covered up. It can't be done. True. But as long as the mystery is solved and no one is that, no one is harmed in the end because of it, I think that's good enough for his conscience and his pragmatic nature. Well, what do you think of this, Josh? I'm going to read you a note now from uh, Klinger's annotations. Uh, many critics, like Anne Jordan, argue that Holmes did not take this case out of concern for his own fame or pocket, but that the substantial reward money offered, along with the Duke's seeming desire to deal with the matter quietly, gave surmise that the situation... Oh, sorry, gave the detective pause. In other words, Holmes surmised that the situation was suggestive of a father who had a guilty secret, a secret which he was prepared to keep hidden, even if it meant putting his own son's life at risk. Holmes, Jordan guesses, felt an imperative to investigate if he was to save the life of Holderness's son. 
that's a possibility. And are they actually suggesting that perhaps this has something to do with his own parent, his own parentage, well, his own, his own background? Yeah, there's another point about that, his own parentage, uh, connection to the cow shit, uh, about how one of the reasons why Holmes calls himself an idiot for not knowing that if there were cows there, there should have been cow shit all over the fields, is because he was grown up by commoners, or, you know, he's ancestor to commoners on farms and things and should have noticed that. Yes, that's that's right. I don't know. I mean, that's that's really reading surgically deep into it, but no, it makes sense. It's interesting. Uh, here's another interesting point: uh, the bank that Holmes cites, the Capital and Counties Bank, uh, is the same bank that I mean, Holmes cites that as his own bank. Remember when he's talking about transfer of money and whatnot with the Duke? Uh, and another upcoming character who we haven't met yet uses that bank, Neville Saint Clair from the Twisted Lip, the man with the Twisted Lip. Remember mm. the guy who was uh, doubling as the, the, the poor man? Yeah, that's right. He used that bank, and Conan Doyle himself used that bank. It later merged into Lloyd's, which is now, and then went Lloyd's TSB, which is now just Lloyd's again, uh, in London. So, interesting. The Capital and Counties Bank was a real bank that uh, two characters, plus Holmes and Doyle himself, all used. Huh. And a final interesting point from The Adventure of the Priory School Watson records himself smoking cigarettes in only one other story, and along with this one. My challenge to you, BFG, is what story is it? And by the way, this is canon, okay? But I'll tell you that it's a story we've already read and discussed on the show. What other story, the only other one, from the Sherlock Holmes canon, does Watson record himself smoking cigarettes? Heard of the Baskervilles? Boom! Nailed it. Well done. That's yep. it. I, I, for the only reason, that's because that had the most Watson-related scenes, and anything that <laughs> would have been recorded down, you know, would have been something that he would have described. That was brilliantly deduced. Mm-hmm. Sherlock would be would would uh, be proud. I'm sure he would, because you just looked at it from a simple point of view. Anyway, some believe that Watson was unable to embrace the rebellious image conveyed by cigarettes, while others surmise that it was a late-acquired and short-lived vice. Could be. Maybe after Mary died, whenever that happened. <laughs> exactly. If, I'll tell you what. If, if, if it happened. Well, as we've said on this show before, you know, we're lovers, we are not, uh, we're not experts, and uh, the chronology, we're not even really trying to attack here, because there are uh, oodles and oodles of notes in my annotations about uh, oh this story was written this date but actually film or actually uh, structured here it was before this one and after this one and obviously Mary was this and he hadn't started drinking sherry at this point and oh god just goes on and on so I, I ignore a lot of that but if we were wanting to you know drill down to those expert levels then it's there for us but I'm glad that you're not interested in doing that because I also don't think the average listener uh, well, the listener to our show, at least, is expecting these uh, these flourishes of of scholarship. No, I, I think you know, like, like, like we like the little tidbits to to you know to parse out every now and then. But at the same time, you know, you got to make it fun, and you mm-hmm. and you got to and you got to make it relatable. You do indeed. Okay, well, look, well, we, buddy, we, we uh, try to anyway. I think we do. I think you, we try and we succeed. Yes. Well, you've got two very special. Uh, musical selections to choose from door number one door number two what do you want in here for this the adventure of the priory school door number two door number two well um, this will represent the problem of dr huxtable quite well i think 
Yes, it's the Cosby Show. Uh, different Dr. Huxtable, but, you know, you selected it. I did. I chose door number two. <laughs> Are you regretful of that? And now I closed door number two. <laughs> well, you've got uh, another choice, and we have time to play it if you want to finish off today's episode with... Um, with the second selection from the Adventure of the Priory School, or we could just close out with a nice Christmas tune for the season. A Christmas tune for the season. Have you any requests of Christmas tunes? I've got a great one, if you're interested. Okay. Uh, I'll give you the choice between Roger Moore or William Shatner. William Shatner. William Shatner. Okay, I give you, uh, in closing, William Shatner and a beautiful rendition of uh, Good King Wenceslas. Before before we sign off into that uh, very natural segue, um, uh, what do we got coming up? Uh, next we have the the next three tales of uh, the adventure of Sherlock Holmes, beginning with the adventure of Black Peter. Black Peter is he a pirate? Uh, possibly. The adventure of Charles Augustus Milverton. Ooh, two named, yeah. Yeah. Two names. And then the adventures of the six Napoleons. Mm, the six Napoleons. Uh huh. Uh-huh. That's one I've I've heard of, and I know that the uh, Sherlock plays with that, doesn't it? The, uh, the, the 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 three Thatchers or whatever. Yeah, the three uh, three the six Thatchers or whatever it's called. The six Thatchers. Yeah. I right, look, buddy. Black, I'm curious about Black Peter. As am I. Yeah. Uh, I think we've I think we've done a good service here today. I'm really glad we managed to get this finished because um, the dancing men was hanging over us a bit like a. Like a, a mafia code. Um, any any closing <laughs> remarks on these three? No, I think uh, we've said all there needs to say about these stories, and in uh, strong detail and with fervor. Good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I, for my own part, I would just say the dancing man feels like a greater story than it is because it's. It's made up of really successful parts of other stories, and it's just a little bit too um, too self-aware to get higher mark. We both felt the same thing with a 16 and 16.5, respectively. Solitary Cyclist has got great moments of creative narrative and uh, some good investigation, but principles don't do a lot. Uh, the secondary characters are lame, and so... Although it was a little higher than The Dancing Man, we couldn't exceed 18.5, but The Priory School was the best Great. of the three. Great perpetrators, though. Great, great perpetrators. Great perpetrators. Uh, the Adventure of the Priory School was the best of all three. We have uh, me liking it at 21 and you at 19.5. Uh, the last score that you went 19.5 on was The Empty House. And before that, I haven't liked a story as much as that since... Greek Interpreter. We both liked that one quite a lot. That was a good one. That was. So have you got now that we're nearing the halfway point, you got any favorites that are standing out, forgetting the scores, forgetting the code, the numbers, the index, the pipes? You got any that, uh, you know, you're going to ring out the new year thinking about before we move on? Uh, just going over, like, so if I, were, if I, I guess it would be a pick, you know, per collection, like The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, um, The Red-Headed League, uh, the, the man with the twisted lip, the blue carbuncle, uh, the barrel coronet, engineer's thumb, copper beaches, those ones. Copper beaches, I think, is my favorite of the Avengers of Sherlock Holmes, I'd have to say. Uh, your, um, score, your score would agree with you at 23.5 for yeah. that one. 
the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, uh, the Silver Blaze, I think uh, is, is is pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was I think that was that was like probably one of the best stories. Uh, Musgrave was that was another good one in that in that collection. Yeah, I like and Musgrave the, and the Greek in, and the Greek interpreter. Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, the vendors of the final problem being really disappointing. It was, yeah. Yeah, but we both loved the Baskervilles. It came back with a whopping 24 oh, yeah. out of 25 for both of us. We loved it. We saw that one eye to eye every point. Yeah. Uh, and today we're getting back there with a couple of extra good marks for the last story. Yeah, the empty house and the uh, for the Priory School and the solitary cyclist are my favorite of the of the of, so far of the of this volume. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, look, pal, um, that's been a great show. It's been a lot of fun. Two hours and 30 minutes we've clocked in here. So uh, it's time to say goodbye. And as promised, we're going to say goodbye for this holiday season with a classic from uh, everybody's favorite Sherlock Holmes, um, (laughs) William Shatner. Does does Shatner have any connection to Holmes? Didn't he play like a Holmesian type character on that Canadian uh, investigative or that Canadian mystery show? I don't remember what you had a Canadian mystery show. I can't even remember that. <laughs> yeah, there's, come on, yes, you do, like uh, Murdoch or something. I don't watch that. But what? What's it called? What's it called? You're thinking of Murdoch Mysteries. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah that show's still going on too, from what I understand. Okay. I, I don't. I've never seen that show. Okay. Well, shut me up. Yeah. Uh, good I King Wenceslas. Yeah, Good Here King Wenceslas. Go. William Shatner. I guess the connection you can make is William <laughs> Shatner, Captain Kirk, Star Trek. Star Trek: The Next Generation. You did have like a Sherlock Holmes connection in, in, in a couple in a couple of episodes of that. So that's how that's the six degrees of Kevin Bacon I can offer you. No, I'm going to get better than that. I'm going to do better than that. Uh, I'm going to say King Wenceslas, uh, Feast of Stephen. That's Boxing Day, right? The Feast of Stephen. Yes. Saint Stephen's Day is Boxing Day. Boxing Day have any connection to the Blue Carbuncle? The day after Christmas, got that going on anywhere? Oh yeah, that's true. Maybe, maybe we're we're stretching it here, but uh, let's just play awesome. it for its own merit, its own fun. William Shatner, good King Wenceslas, list. right, pal? You hang on after the tune, and we'll have a catch up. Yep. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen. Happy holidays, everyone. When the snow lay round about, deep, and crisp, and even, we'll catch you in 2018. Brightly shone the moon that night, though the frost was cruel. When a poor man came inside, gathering winter fuel. I think that's enough of that. Let's finish with the safety dance. We come from out of this world, leave the real one far behind. We can 